This is the Apocalypse Theater Podcast. Episode 29 The Kidnap of Marissa Narcissus Part 5 of the Chronicles of Alondranon Summary Having survived both Alondranon and the Alondron natives, Jonathan Tabith has found his calling among these people as an executioner of men. Upon ripping Horez the Scorpion apart in the ring in Shirasa, he was purchased by Duke Farnum Dartus in the wharf city of Dartus. While Jonathan Tabith was fighting for his life, the survivors of the Enigma banded together to formulate their own community, even going so far as to legitimize a small town within the Alondron tax system. As all went according to plan, Clara Wallace, Ryan Thompson, and William Mason were able to secure their own lot of land in Eyre to call home. Will Jonathan be able to find peace within this new lifestyle of murder and bloodlust? Or will the Alondrons use his talents to better their own station within the quarrels they carry amongst themselves? 1. Over the next few weeks, as Jonathan Tabith was expected to take on more and more battle opportunities, he began to notice a change in the fighters he had to face. He spent more time watching the games than actually performing in them, but of the opponents that made it through their first few rounds, he saw them become smaller, wirier. He recognized a few people, and a few recognized him. Jonathan knew he would have to kill his own kind, but he'd become desensitized to the idea of killing anyone. Human, Alondron, everyone bleeds, anyone can die. One of the more dangerous up-and-comers was a man named Remus that had worked as a troubleshooting tech on the Enigma network. He had a mechanical right arm and had somehow figured out how to load it with a so far unlimited supply of munitions. Jimson Crisius had purchased him and could not stop boasting of Remus's success. The Octors and audience members hated him for his quick wins, but he had adopted Jonathan's initial approach to the games and that was to care as little about the audience as humanly possible. He had even gone so far as to defeat Nikus, Narcissus's former champion. Jonathan knew that Remus's success wouldn't be allowed. That meant Jonathan would be called to put him down soon. This worried him because while surviving a spear and a series of knife wounds is one thing, getting shot to high heaven was a whole different situation. He had invented the Manica to defend against gunfire specifically, but hadn't needed it on Alondronon until now. He needed to get the kit he had lost upon his arrival on Alondronon, and he needed to get it before he and Remus faced one another. Jonathan was set to fight in the trade square of Dartus next, and then he was to perform several rounds in the Defringo and Shirasa since it had been reconstructed after the elaborate prison break and genocide that Jonathan knew was the work of his fellow human beings. Afterward, he would visit Crisius, and there he would likely face Remus, giving him a conservative three weeks at most to figure out how to repair the Manica. Jonathan's life in Dartus had been the best, and oddly most gratifying, time he had experienced since before the wormhole had changed his universe. His peers in the hall respected him, and, having slain a dragon, no one bothered testing his loyalty. After being commended by the audience and training with the ruthless Deltia Chester, Jonathan had grown accustomed to living on Alondronon. Sometimes he had no choice but to do things he absolutely hated, such as go to parties, act sociable for Dartus's visitors, or prepare mock fights for children or spectators of the city. Other times, he felt like he couldn't get any closer to royalty as he had servants to bathe him, his choice of women, and all the food he could get his hands on. 
Being an important figure amidst the champions of Dartus, Farnum Dartus wanted to make sure Jonathan understood the details of a Londron society. He regarded him as mentally handicapped. In any other instance, Jonathan might have been insulted, but to the outside observer, Jonathan's knowledge of the world and language was that of a four-year-old. He could construct simple sentences, and he had a vague understanding of where the other cities were in relation to Dartus, but he was completely clueless otherwise. A good friend of Dartus and Farnham was Harold Rowe, a young senator for Chryseus's royal council and the dock overseer for Narsus. He visited Dartus twice a week to review Chryseus's finances and trade agreements within the city. There stood a treaty between the two cities that allowed Chryseus direct trade through Dartus's wharf at a reduced percentage of compensation. Harold's recently appointed job was to make sure the earnings and trade matched the shipping and receiving, as well as contact the managers in the docks directly when the numbers didn't add up. He was the oil between Chryseus, Dartus, Narsus, and Cathra, keeping the machine running smoothly while putting huge sums of money into the pockets of all parties involved. Harold Rowe was also Jonathan's new education teacher. Since Jonathan's schedule was primarily dedicated to the preparation of slaughter, he spent most of his time training with his peers or Deltia Chester. Twice a week, however, after Rowe had finished his rounds in the docks and had all his work packed in a leather bag at his hip, he visited the Hall of Champions to spend a Myrta, the Alondron equivalent to a human hour, teaching Jonathan the basics of Alondron society. Needless to say, the hour went quickly. Due to Jonathan's uncanny ability to assimilate and apply new information, the two became good friends. Jonathan had a long and arduous week following Remus's first day of victories. His dreams were plagued with the reliving of his executions or intense training, sometimes both. A person can only maintain their grip on reality and socially acceptable activity for so long while ruthlessly murdering for money on a weekly basis. Jonathan worried because he had begun to take a horrible satisfaction in what he was doing. He moved from town to town, squeezing the life out of his opponents. He learned how to execute a man with his bare hands, how to use all of his limbs to put the odds in his favor. By the end of the week, Jonathan calculated that he had murdered 32 people for Farnham Dartus. He was paid well and honored for his services, but he couldn't help feeling guilty. Watching the smiling faces of the wealthy people around him getting richer and richer from his success, believing that what they were doing was okay and not crimes against humanity, Jonathan began to feel frustration all the time which in turn made him angry all the time. It jived well with his growing bloodlust, but as he would eventually learn, all of it was consuming him. He was a candle burning at both ends. The guilty, human side of him showed in his expression when Harold Rowe visited him later in the afternoon after he received his pay. Jonathan sat in a chair at the table in the library, quiet and thinking about their conversation. Rowe was seated opposite to him, relaxed, watching the thoughts pass through Jonathan like clouds. Is everything all right? Rowe asked. Can't get much better, at least not for someone like me, Jonathan said. Keep saving. Someday you can open your own trade shop and be free of the virago. I don't think I'll ever stop fighting so long as I'm alive, Jonathan sighed. He knew Roe was different, because most of the other boneheaded Alondrons would have wondered why he considered that a problem. Champions do retire on occasion, Rowe said. Chryseus himself has allowed several champions their freedom. An idea occurred to him. He wondered why he hadn't considered it earlier. Chryseus, said Jonathan, would it be possible to enlist your help for an upcoming project? It depends on what you need, 
As far as acquiring anything in particular, I may be rather limited in what I can bring you. I need something of no real importance to anyone for one week, and it can be returned at the end of the week or even sooner. I just need a small bag that was taken from me when I was first imprisoned in Chryseis. There may be what the guards consider a weapon inside, but I don't need the weapon, I just need the tools. Should I acquire this bag for you, what will you use these tools to do? Ro asked. You are aware of your ruler's new growing champion, Remus. Ro wrinkled his brow. I could not throw advantage to you, Jonathan, a champion of Dartus, over a champion that heralds from Chryseis. That would be considered treason to my country and king. I only want to level the playing field. You've seen Remus, the way he wins. He's declared the victor before his opponent can even take a single step. I'm also requesting something that belongs to me by right. You were stripped of your rights and belongings when you were processed in Chryseis, Harold Rose said snidely. I'm aware of that. I don't want to keep this bag. You can return it to wherever it's being held if you'd like, but I need it. Roe looked as though he might consider the idea. You don't have to help me, said Jonathan, but I'd be grateful if you did. It won't look like anything else in the evidence room. The bag has this symbol on it. He placed a piece of paper on the table and drew, with his quill, the slant-designed E on the bag that symbolized the enigma. Roe surveyed the paper. We'll see, but I'm not making any promises. Let's get on to where we left off. Can you tell me the days of the week? Intaday, Betay, Tibday, Meday, Postday, Fairday, Vinday, Prayday, and Xday. Jonathan recited. Excellent. Let's move on to units of time, Rose said, and the two continued. Marissa Narcissus picked at her food at the dinner table irritably as her father discussed business topics with her eldest sister, Vila, a well-to-do duchess at the age of thirty who lived in Cathara and visited weekly. Surveys Narcissus never spoke to Marissa. She was only nineteen years old, so her opinion was worth next to nothing, at least to her father. She sighed, wishing that dinner could be over sooner. Very well, Vila, said Surveys. I'll purchase the lot for you, but you must pay me back by the end of the Aena. He wiped his mouth before taking a sip of white wine. He had narrow green eyes and a stern face, giving him an intimidating air of command and control. Shouldn't be a problem, Vila flashed a sinister grin at Marissa. Marissa glared at her. She and Vila had hated one another for most of their lives. They never got along. All three of the Narcissus sisters had the same long brown hair, the same strong lean physique, and each of them inherited a taut sternness from their father's face. Appy, their middle sister, currently overseas commanding one of their father's important diplomacy missions, had been the social glue between Marissa and the rest of the family. Before she left, Marissa had been much happier, able to legitimately speak her mind. Once Appy departed, the family may as well have forgotten about Marissa. Their brother, Devier, sat across from Marissa with the butler assisting him with the meal. Devier was injured after a horse fell on him. The back of his head connected hard with a rock on the ground, rendering him paralyzed and hunched over, but alive for what it was worth. He had short brown hair and light green eyes that had swooned the hearts of many women before the accident. Now there was no heir to the throne, and little chance of that ever changing. The dinner table was the only place they could all get along. Their mother, Shiva Narsis, eating amiably at the opposite end of the table from her husband, usually instigated ideas and subject with which to converse. Surveys generally took the conversation and ran with it, regaling the many stories from his youth to his wife and children. 
Other than the grief that mingled within the family since Devier's accident, they were as close to a happy traditional family as you could get on a Londrinon. As Marissa's father and sister continued their conversation, Marissa finished her food and excused herself to her room to get ready for bed. Jonathan stood in the training ground with his arms crossed as he gazed across the city of Dartus. Smoke rose from the industrial district and fire burned from the torches dispersed throughout the streets. His attention was upon the stars, shining like grains of sand from the desert of the universe. He thought of Earth and how he would never see it again, how it could be gone by now for all he knew, how he would find it or its remnants either way if possible. He heard footsteps approaching. The jingle of chainmail meant that it was a guard. He was being summoned. I'm on orders to bring you to the stables. You are to depart for Chryseus immediately. Jonathan turned around to face the guard in the hall on the hill behind him. This late? The guard nodded. Just received word that you are to face Remus in the morning. A spike of fear fired through Jonathan's stomach. Harold Rowe barely had time to return home, let alone consider the task Jonathan requested of him. Tomorrow? Chryseus wishes to test your and Remus's skill in battle. Your fight begins at high noon tomorrow. Jonathan quietly made his way toward the hall to gather his things. He was in a cart on his way to Chryseus to the north within the hour. Lydia and Cess got drunk at the bar that night. The two were stumbling down the streets of Upper Narsus. It was still early, so there was traffic in the streets, merchant carts, horse-drawn carriages, and pedestrians enjoying the nightlife. They passed a few other drunkards, but no one looked as inebriated as them. Where are we going? Where are we going? Cess asked eagerly. Lydia loved being with Cess when he was drunk because he was like an overly large child, interested in everything. I know a few cool places, she said, thinking of the bell tower of the church on the other side of the upper district. The only problem was remembering how to get there while trying to access her brain. This way, she laughed. They stumbled across the street and entered an alley corridor. Both began laughing uncontrollably, tripping over themselves as they made their way between the nexus of financial offices and wealthy homesteads. Before Cess could walk right into the Royal Parkway, Lydia grabbed his collar and tugged him back. She pulled him down next to her behind a large trash bin as they hid. A patrol guard walked by, looking down the alley with his torchlight high over his shoulder, reflecting off the bricks of the buildings and cobblestone floors. Cess and Lydia fought to keep from giggling. The guard walked on. Come on, Lydia scrambled to a run back the way they had come. I know a shortcut. They made their way around an overpass that crossed over the Royal Parkway. The bridge was guarded, but they wouldn't get reprimanded for getting in the way of potential traffic. The two mixed with a group of pedestrians and slipped by the guards. It was illegal to be too drunk in public on the streets of Narsus, so they didn't want to draw attention to themselves. As they crossed the bridge, they could see the gargantuan Narsus castle in the distance at the end of the Royal Parkway. It had three main spires distributed throughout its wide form, the massive center being the tallest where the royal quarters lay, at the base of which was the financial sector of the castle. Each of the other towers represented a different branch of the royal government, that of the people and that of the ruling class, each held in perfect balance to one another. The middle story of the central tower was the center of information. Lydia and Cess passed through the crowded upper market district and found the secluded streets of the religious quarter. The shrine of Amine towered to the heavens from the center, the most heavily guarded area of the city aside from the castle district. At the far east of the city, on the edge of the cliff peering off into the ocean below, stood an abandoned steeple. 
It loomed from the darkness against the starry night sky as the waves of the North Sea churned below. Beyond the ledge, the lavender moon, Mara, cast the sea in a beautiful purple glow. Told you I'd get us here, Lydia said, feeling a little more sober after their run. It's so neat, Cess peered at the skeletal steeple top. He glanced at the vacant black windows as the wind brought his temperature down a few notches. What religion did you say this place was dedicated to again? I didn't, but I think it's Amine, she said, hurrying down the overgrown cobbled steps. One of the double doors stood ajar, and she slipped inside. Cess followed her. Inside, Lydia jogged down the central aisle between broken pews. The brass altar at the end of the aisle had been knocked over. The weather had torn out most of the back wall behind it. The narrow stairwell led up to the second story of splintered rafters. Cess climbed the stairs, and the two stood on the ledge next to an opening in the wall. They could see far out into the sea beneath the purple moon in the night. A perpetual line of carrier boats made their way across the horizon toward Narcissus' wharf. The two stared at the evening for a long while. Cess yawned. Lydia smiled. Let's get you home. She patted his shoulder and the two started toward the lower district. Cess passed out on the top of the covers of his bed. Lydia quietly crept out of the house into the early morning. She pulled her coat tight to herself and started for the upper levels of the city. She walked through the shadows of an alley and stepped in a puddle. She swore as she continued down the path. A moment later, Lydia heard another foot hit the same puddle. Glancing over her shoulder, she saw a figure following her. The person broke into a run when she saw them. Lydia charged for the wall at the end of the path. Her pursuer was gaining on her. She ran up the wall, grabbed the ledge, and pulled herself up. Looking behind her, she saw the person standing by the nearby torch, watching her. His face was covered with a mask of swirling color. It looked like an odd fingerprint in the firelight. Lydia turned around to make for her home when she ran into someone's chest. It was another person wearing the same odd-colored mask. Hi, Lydia, French said as he took off the mask and gave her a cold grin. He grabbed her wrist. Lydia was about to run, but French closed a hand around her mouth. In his palm, he held a cloth coated with the extract juices of the super plant. Lydia's eyes rolled back into her head as she clawed for the knife in the sheath on her calf. She struggled for a few seconds, trying to scream through Frint's grasp, but she started to daze. Lydia kicked wildly as Frint laid her down in the street. Her eyes closed, and her mind drifted into a drug-induced sleep. Three other men emerged from around the corner and hoisted Lydia's sleeping body into the carriage of a nearby cart. They covered her with bread and threw a tarp over the back. Frint and another followed the carriage, directing the horse to the front of the city. When the gate guard, donned in the blue and gold trimmed armor of Narcissus, glanced under the tarp, he saw only bread. The guard dropped the tarp and waved them through. Everything had gone precisely as planned. 2. The morning following Marissa Narcissus's disappearance, in the kingdom of Pafane, in the Chartan capital city of Chryseus, Harold Rowe was finishing his breakfast with Jim's and Chryseus on the top step of the city as the sun peered over the eastern horizon, setting the hills and valleys between ablaze with golden light. And I've already told you that Jonathan isn't like the other opponents. He's not going to let your man win easily, Harold said. Chryseus chuckled. I've seen him fight. He's fast, but he doesn't have the deadly instant kill quality that Remus has. It will be an interesting fight, Roe sighed. Worried that I'll blow the head off your prize, pupil? Chryseus asked. 
I told you not to take on that job, not for Dartus. How was I to know you'd find a marksman that's obviously one of these humans everyone's up in arms about? Roe wondered. So you heard about the prison break in Shirasa? Chrysius met Roe's eye. Roe nodded. You didn't hear this from me, but surveys Narcissus is furious about the event. He's talking about outlawing the creatures and their advantages. It does throw our arena games into a bit of a spin. The wins the humans create are impressive, but at what cost? No Alondron can contend with their level of power, said Roe. You don't think Jonathan is a human, do you? Chrysius asked, remembering how he had Bruto stab him in the Virago. He had watched the blood pour out of Jonathan with pleasure, believing with every fiber in his body that the man was dead. Now he was gallivanting around, slaying dragons and winning battles left and right. It would make a lot of sense, Roe frowned. I'm looking forward to seeing Remus tear him to pieces with bullets. I want his limbs severed from his body, nothing recognizable. If he comes back, he won't be pretty. The idea made Harold Roe nauseous. You really don't like this person. Roe gave a false laugh. Chrysius continued staring ahead, sullen. No one goes down in the trow and gets back up again, and no human can be allowed to champion our games. One of Chrysius's daughters, Windla, approached. She wore an orange gown and carried her father's sword on a pillow. I'm afraid I must cut our breakfast short, Harold. Chrysius stood from the table and wiped the wrinkles from his robe. He took the sword in its sheath from the pillow and wrapped the belt about his waist. He put his hand low upon his daughter's hip, kissed her on the forehead, and ruffled her golden blonde hair before making his way back to the castle behind him. His daughter remained with her hands at her front and her head down. My father requested that I lay with you again, she said softly. Harold Rose stood, moved around the table and pulled her into a hug, allowing her to rest her head on his chest. He stroked her blonde hair and licked his lips. Tell him what we agreed last time. We made love and we're waiting to see. In the meantime, keep trying to conceive with your lover. Treskal and I have tried and tried. He has not given me a son or daughter. I'm afraid I may need to move on to someone else, lest my father choose someone less understanding than you. Winla sighed. He has such awful taste in men. No offense. I'm twice your age, Winla. Supposing you had an honest choice in the matter, I doubt I'd be high on your list of potential lovers. Roe smiled. You're too kind, said Winla. I won't bed you, but I will ask for your assistance in another matter, Roe said to Winla. She pulled away from his chest and met his eyes with her green ones. I owe you my assistance in any way possible. Come with me to the prison office. I need your clearance with the guard to find something I need. Be angry with me, as if I had a prisoner processed with an item of great importance. It actually happens frequently. With you, no one will question why I'm there. You'll owe no debt to me if you can help. Winla wrinkled her forehead at him. Is that really all you need? That's hardly a request. You don't even need my help for this. It would mean the world to me if you'd play along, Rose said, holding her gaze. All right, shall we go? Roe nodded and the two headed for the elevator. A common adage of the city of Chryseus was that the city itself is supported by the chains of its foundation. Ten stories high, built upon a massive undercroft labyrinth that hadn't been opened since the previous lunar war with the Pharaonites, Chryseus was an innovative capital for both traders and artisans. Unique in its tower design, each story highlighted a different set of industrial skills. 
Each level had a residential district, and each different level was connected by an ornate set of stairways. An escape platform was built into the side of every story, set to release in the event of a citywide emergency. Within the center of the tower was a heavily guarded elevator that ran from the base of the tower to the top. At the time, the city had 270,000 residents. Harold and Wendela took the elevator down to the base level and entered the prisons through the guard offices close to the center of the tower. They met the short man at the head of the office. His name was Reed. Something I can help you with? Reed asked. He wore a green tie beneath his gray doublet. He flicked his gray eyes between Windla and Roe. Yes, a prisoner was submitted yesterday. We don't know what his name was or what he looked like, but we believe there was something of great importance on his person. Do you know what it was that he had? Reed asked. Windla looked to Roe. Harold cleared his throat. It was a bag of some sort. A bag. Reed's patience was beginning to wear. I'm sorry, I see hundreds of prisoners a day, and more than half have bags of some form on them. It looks like... it looks like... He paused and thought, fixing his gaze on nothing in the ceiling. Reed rolled his eyes. Can you just let us look through the evidence room? Roe asked. Of course, sir. Right this way. Reed turned and opened the door behind him. They entered a hall with many other doors lining the walls. Reed stopped before the second door on the right, placed a key in the lock, unlocked it, and pulled the door back. He stepped aside so that Harold and Winla could enter. Roe grabbed the torch from the sconce by the door and entered a large room that smelled of many different odors from many different places. They walked along the shelves housing items that had been confiscated by the soldiers over the months and years. Reed followed them in and directed them toward the shelf with the most recent findings. This is from the last few days, Reed said. Roe perused all of it in a swift glance and confirmed quickly that what he was looking for was not there. Jonathan had told him about his trip to Chryseus, and it had to have been from several months before. Harold continued browsing down the line. Reed fixed him with a reproachful stare as he turned the corner at the end of the shelf and moved down the line. Windla saw him and remembered that she had a part to play. She marched over to Roe, thinking as she went. Windla grabbed Harold's arm and turned him around. He gaped at her, confused. I told you, she said, improvising. I told you this would happen. You were supposed to make sure he was captured and bring my necklace back to me. She crossed her arms. Roe picked up without skipping a beat. He gave her a genuinely guilty look. It, it was months ago. I told you it was yesterday, but it was months ago that he was captured. I had forgotten to get the necklace back. Please, Winla, don't be angry with me. Behind them, Reed sighed. I have a lot of paperwork to fill out and more prisoners to process. Let me know when you're finished in here and I'll come back and lock the door behind you. The two thanked Reed and he left them in peace. Brilliantly played, Rose said to Winla. Thank you, she blushed. After about fifteen minutes... Harold Rowe was able to locate and identify the bag with the E on the side that Jonathan had shown him. He was right, and it didn't look like anything he had ever seen before. It was made of a durable fabric that wouldn't tear or rip open. Beneath it, an internal shell housed whatever was inside. Rowe found a zipper, and then messed with the otherworldly latch for a few seconds before it snapped open. He saw plastic containers of small tools and portable electric sensors. It looked like bizarre technology to Rowe. 
There was also a small earthen fire weapon buried beneath the tools. Harold zipped up the bag and slid the pouch into his pocket. Roe grabbed the nicest piece of jewelry he could find off one of the shelves and the two left the room. They walked slowly, Roe with his arm around Windla. Reed watched them make their way around the counter. Did you two find the necklace? He moved his gaze between them. Yes, we did. Roe placed the item he had grabbed on the table. All three saw that it was nothing more than an onyx bracelet. Reed picked up the bracelet and examined it closely. He looked to Roe and then to Windla. Didn't you say you were looking for a necklace? Windla blinked. I did, but this is the object the thief had stolen from me. I thought it was a necklace, she laughed airily, but it was this. Reed continued looking between them. He knew something was wrong. He looked down at Rose's pockets. Reed parted his lips to order him to empty them when he met the harsh stare of Winlacrisius's green eyes. He closed his mouth and gave them a false grin as he handed the bracelet back to Winla. Have a good evening, and good luck with the games this afternoon, Reed nodded, his tone as cold as ice. The two left the office and returned to the top step. Jonathan's return to Chryseus brought with it the memories of his untimely initiation into a Londron society. From the outside, the city was a marvel to look upon. Passing through the streets, it was an innovative artisan trade city. None of it could change the soiled, broken mound of corpses it sat upon. The filthy conditions, the inhumane treatment, the river of blood, gore, piss, and feces. As he ascended the seemingly endless staircases throughout the tower, Jonathan thought about how much he wanted to see the city burn. He wanted to see the levels collapsing, buildings caving in on each other, the citizens screaming as the entire place fell into a heap. Meyer Winshock met Jonathan outside the stables and relieved his guard escort. Even though he was still technically a prisoner, Jonathan had earned the loyalty and trust of his captors and Dartus. They met Harold Rowe on the fourth step, and he offered to lead them to the Virago. They allowed him to do so. Chryseus's Virago was on the ninth step. That it was the largest story on the tower, that the arena lay beneath the top step and below the castle so that the king and the council could view the games from above, made the entire experience ominous and unnerving. Harold Rowe mentioned that the coming battle had been greatly anticipated throughout the city, so much that the city engineers had removed the entire central elevator column so that the arena might be utilized to its full capability. They entered the preparation hall, and Jonathan met Remus for the first time since they had worked together on the Enigma. The Chryseus quartermaster had shaved Remus's beard and mutton chops. He had a narrow jaw and short, dark brown hair. His determined brown eyes followed Jonathan across the room. Meyer got some food into Jonathan's belly. Afterward, Jonathan took a few minutes in Adhi to prepare himself for the coming fight. Less than an hour later, the two exited their chutes to the arena and made their way across the sands of Chryseus's Virago. It was easily the largest arena Jonathan had ever witnessed. Twelve massive pillars supported the castle upon the top step a quarter of a mile above the battleground. Stands lined the many-layered rims of the ninth level of Chryseus. Other than the slice of pie that the castle rested on, the floor of the top step had been removed so that the sun could shine on the combatants. The more expensive seats stood upon a large suspended platform within the shade that the castle had provided. People had come from all over Eyre and every part of Charton to see the coming fight. Jonathan and Remus met in the middle of the arena. Jonathan wore a tan breastplate and matching leggings, boots, bracers, and gauntlets. 
Remus wore a black Kevlar vest beneath a black overcoat with his collar raised. He wore camouflage pants and army boots. So much had changed in such a short period of time, whatever commonality they once had was gone. Jimson Crisius addressed the audience before the battle could begin. He stood on a speaker's balcony on par with the suspended platform over the arena. Good afternoon, and welcome to Crisius for this much-anticipated fight between Jonathan and Remus. Crisius spoke to the hordes of Alondron spectators. For such a spectacular event, we'd like to change the rules of the Virago just a bit, if you'd be so kind as to hang on to the safety bars wherever available. Thank you. Crisius pulled a lever next to his seat. The whole of the arena began to shake. A graded stone floor rose beneath Jonathan and Remus. The platform parted, and each slid to the back of the arena. Both contestants fell to their knees from the motion once their platforms stopped. The center of the arena became a massive vortex within the sand. The stone platforms dispersed about the room began to rotate around the room as the floor descended. The walls and stands were mechanically separated and lifted higher as the arena base virtually disappeared into the distant pit below. At the bottom, a series of whirling blades like that of a whirring blender spun into a lashing, biting frenzy. Good luck, and begin! Chrysius yelled. Jonathan and Remus's bases began to move about the wall. Jonathan watched Remus while trying to figure out the arena. The stone platforms circulating around the pit were going both clockwise and counterclockwise. Jonathan noticed that every now and then a huge blade cut through the sandy wall and sliced through the arena. It happened at unpredictable intervals, and never in the same place twice. He noticed that the equipment alcove stood as a free-for-all two levels above the spinning blades below. Remus drew a rifle from his mechanical arm and took aim at Jonathan. Thinking it best to stay in motion, Jonathan jumped to the platform after it rotated beneath his base. A spritz of sand sprayed over his shoulder. Jonathan saw Chrysius smirking at him from the seat high above. He had deliberately given Remus the advantage and left Jonathan weaponless. Remus fired and missed again. Jonathan dropped several yards to the next platform. Before Remus could strike him, he dropped beneath the platform and clung to the bottom to avoid being seen. Remus wasted four bullets and had to reload. Jonathan fell from the platform and landed on another. The motion of going one direction and quickly changing directions disoriented him. A deafening sound filled his ear as agony screeched into his brain. The ringing continued as Jonathan touched his ear and looked at the blood on his fingers. The son of a bitch had shot off the tip of his ear. He dove off the platform and free fell toward the chopping blur of instant death. The giant blade sliced through the cylindrical arena. Jonathan bounced off the flat side and caught the blunt back lip of it as the mechanism retracted toward the wall. He pushed off and latched onto the platform before dropping onto the floor of the equipment room. Exhausted from moving so quickly, Jonathan perused his options. Everything was free for the taking. He grabbed a longsword and sheath on a belt and looped it about his waist. Jonathan took a shield and then he saw it. In the corner of the equipment room lay the small black pouch. Jonathan reached for it. Suddenly, the floor beneath the equipment dropped out and everything in the equipment alcove fell onto an identical platform on a level below where the dusty earth closed in and reformed the wall. Horrified, Jonathan threw the shield aside and grappled the wall as if to find the switch that housed the other room. Standing up straight, Jonathan could feel Remus's sights on him. He dove for the shield as a bullet whizzed over his head, striking the wall behind him. Jonathan took up the shield as three more bullets blew the shield to smithereens. 
Jonathan threw the pieces aside and tumbled forward. With his inertia, he flung himself out of the alcove toward his adversary, spanning the gap between them impossibly. Remus, on the platform opposite to where the equipment alcove used to be, gaped at Jonathan coming right at him as he tried to reload his rifle. Jonathan smashed into Remus with both boots on his chest, ricocheting into the air over his shoulder. The arena-wide blade flew through the space between them, narrowly missing Jonathan before he caught a platform as it whizzed around the stadium. Jonathan watched the audience cheering as he rode the stone around the arena. So much had happened, he had nearly forgotten about the audience. He was on one of the fastest-moving platforms, so he had time to figure out what to do next. He wondered what had happened to the equipment when he saw it rematerialize in a different alcove across from him. As soon as he saw it, Remus appeared in his field of vision. Remus jumped to the alcove and began guarding. Chryseus had run him through this arena before, taught Remus all of its secrets and points so that he'd have the ultimate advantage over Jonathan. Jonathan felt his platform dissolve into the wall, where it dropped him down to a slower one. Remus took aim at Jonathan. There was nowhere to go, nowhere to hide. He was a target in the open without a leaf of cover. Just as the crack of the rifle echoed throughout the arena, Jonathan drew his sword and sliced the bullet out of the air. The bullet broke the tip of the sword. Three more simultaneous cracks filled the air as Jonathan exhausted the blade's use and tossed the hilt away. Remus furiously threw the rifle to the ground and took up two pistols from his cloak. He jumped to the next platform and rode it toward Jonathan with his coat billowing behind him. Jonathan went the other way with the idea of throwing off Remus. Unfortunately, Remus had no intention of abandoning the equipment alcove. The faster platform had reappeared. Once Remus caught it, he was riding around the arena with his sights on Jonathan. With a running jump, Jonathan closed the distance of the arena and landed on the lowest platform that hovered over the lashing, chewing blades. His arms popped beneath his weight as he caught the stone ledge as it rose vertically. He didn't have time to stop. Jonathan threw himself to the next stone square, and the next, until he landed in front of Remus. There was a brief skirmish where Remus blasted his pistols at Jonathan as Jonathan kicked and punched his aim away. Jonathan planted his foot at an angle behind Remus and shoved him with both hands as he'd done with Deltia Chester. Remus hooked a boot into Jonathan's jaw before he plunged backward off the platform. Jonathan tumbled over one platform and fell off a second one before he slammed onto his stomach atop yet another. He glanced down painfully to see the equipment alcove several stories below, available and free for the taking. He crawled to the edge of his platform, clinging onto the corner for dear life. As he made for the equipment, Jonathan wondered how the hell any Alondron or normal person would be able to do anything like what he had done in this arena. Had the entire thing been concocted just to watch people make fools of themselves before inevitably falling to the blades below? He had a feeling it was a little of both as he climbed to the alcove. Remus was nowhere to be seen. Jonathan ran into the shade and grabbed the black kit, feeling all of the tools he had packed before evacuating the Enigma. Hands shaking, the whole kit fell apart in his grasp, scattering pliers, screwdrivers, and electrical tools all over the sandy ground. The pistol he had saved wasn't with the rest of the equipment. Dropping to his haunches, Jonathan searched for the size of screwdriver that would open the manica and reset the device once he did. He saw it grabbed it, and felt the feeling of anticipation emanating from Remus as his attention met Jonathan's back. He took a fistful of sand and tools and heaved them at Remus as he entered the equipment alcove. Jonathan turned and fired a kick into Remus's chest before he could shoot him, sending Remus flying off the ledge. 
peering down at his manica with the tool he'd dreamed of finding dozens of times in his hand. Jonathan used the flat end of the screwdriver to slide it into a nearly microscopic hole in the side of the bracer. It popped open, releasing sand and grit into the air. Jonathan was about to push the reset button when something soft shoved him in the back and off the ledge. The screwdriver spun through the air as his manica snapped closed. Jonathan reached for the tool, catching nothing as it fell toward the chopping blades below. Jonathan's eyes filled with fear of having to make a crucial calculation with very little time. His eyes narrowed. Jonathan pulled his fists to his sides as he and the only tool capable of saving his life plunged toward the whirring blender that spread wide to receive him. He grabbed for the screwdriver and missed for the last time. He had to let it go. Jonathan dropped his legs into the sandy wall of the pit as the screwdriver sparked into the blades and beyond. He slid down to where his foot was just above the chopping line, and clambered to the middle of the cone-like wall of sand before he could sink any deeper. He could feel the wind of the spinning machine behind him. Jonathan slid down the wall helplessly as the blender chewed the air, ready to turn any matter into mincemeat. He turned over on his back as he slid toward the windy, whirling blades. A grenade landed in the sand of the wall opposite to him just above the machine. Jonathan's eyes widened. He swam up the sand wall again as Remus landed on the closest platform overhead. He had a cigar in his mouth as he drew his pistols again and took aim. Jonathan saw the equipment alcove reappear behind him over Remus's shoulder. Boom! Fire and heat met his backside as Jonathan grappled a platform that had just appeared overhead. Remus began to unload everything at Jonathan as his stone landing spun around the wall of the arena. Jonathan's ears were ringing from the deafening noise. Just as their platforms were to pass one another, Jonathan ran up the wall and slapped both of Remus's pistols away. The mechanical hand at the end of his arm flipped up and became a gun barrel. With his left arm, Jonathan pushed Remus's aim toward the sand wall as bullets regurgitated from the end, hammering both their bodies with its force. Remus swore at him before Jonathan smashed his right elbow through the robot arm. It didn't break the first or second time, but the third time Jonathan used his knee. A small explosion threw the two apart. Ribbons of wire and electrical spokes sparked from the arm in Jonathan's grasp as bullets and machine parts rained from the pieces. Dropping the arm, Jonathan walked toward Remus who was on his side trying to cock a small twenty-two pistol against the ground since he no longer had an offhand to do it properly. Jonathan kicked the gun out of his grasp so hard that it flew into one of the audience levels above. He hadn't noticed, but the audience had not ceased their deafening roar throughout the entire fight. Remus collapsed to his knees before Jonathan. Jonathan looked up to Chryseus who was wearing a permanent snarl upon his furious face. Chryseus met Remus's eye and nodded. Jonathan turned around as Remus began fumbling with the trigger to a suicide bomb that was live on his back. Remus threw off his cloak and flipped the switch over the detonation button in his good hand. At least eight fully loaded wreaths of crisscrossing bullets retracted from his body and began to whirr. Remus was going to kill everything in the arena, and probably quite a few spectators, but he'd be ridding Dartus of its champion in the process. Picking up the mechanical arm, Jonathan broke off a thin but solid wire. He flipped open his manica, the only useful thing the screwdriver had accomplished, allowing access to the interior. Jonathan poked the wire into the reset button and watched his manica glow to life just as Remus pressed the red button for the detonator. Jonathan heard the explosion, saw the hundreds of bullets on the bomb rupture and split in all directions. An amber force field glowed around Jonathan as it absorbed Remus's destruction and faded away. 
The audience was silent, staring at the smoky scene in horror to see if Jonathan had survived. After the dust cleared and Jonathan turned back around, he saw the skeletal remains of a charred, one-armed torso lying amidst the shrapnel of the bomb, the skull grinning the grin Remus had worn beneath his flesh throughout his entire life. The audience, seeing a competitor still miraculously standing within the bizarre arena, cheered so loudly that everyone in Dartus could hear the fruits of Jonathan's success. Jimson Crisius left the Virago in a fury as Jonathan prepared for the trip home. A week after Jonathan's success in Crisius's Virago, Jonathan received a summons to the Duke's company. He had been told that he would probably not see Varnum Dartus unless he had gotten into serious trouble, so he was confused about the nature of the invitation. Meyer Winshock, wearing a light blue toga, led him down to the city markets and bought Jonathan breakfast. Fresh chicken eggs, bread, and orange juice, his favorite morning combination. He devoured the food as Meyer sat adjacent to him with his arms crossed, his eyes fixed upon nothing. Jonathan had noticed similar expressions upon the faces of other officials of late. It was as though a shadow had fallen over the natives of Alondronon, and the unspoken connection met with each of them internally. Is there something the matter? Jonathan asked. It's... Meyer sighed, meeting Jonathan's eyes for the first time that morning. You're not a fool, Jonathan. It has something to do with me, doesn't it? Jonathan nodded. It's nothing that you've done, Meyer said. Jonathan immediately understood the problem. They had figured out what he really was. The Alondrons had finally realized that they needed him dead. Dartus will explain the details, but you're being purchased. He hadn't been expecting that. Purchased? King Surveys Narsus will be your new master. Come, you are to depart before the end of the morning, and Dartus wishes to speak to you one last time before parting your services. Meyer led him to the castle. It took Meyer forty-five minutes of searching and asking servants before they directed them to the theater hall where the Duke was seated at the back of the theater, watching the performers rehearse for an upcoming show. Meyer nodded for Jonathan to go and sit beside him. Jonathan made his way down the aisle of seats to where Dartus was seated. Farnum Dartus wore a comfortable royal woolen robe with exquisite slippers upon his feet. He met Jonathan's gaze and the two greeted one another. Jonathan sat in the seat beside him and watched the performers. So it goes. Dartus waved his hand in the air. Men who are purchased will inevitably be purchased, and so on and so forth. I hope you've enjoyed your time in Dartus, and I wish you the same sort of happiness I provided here wherever you go. Unfortunately, his gaze darkened as the torchlight nearby distinguished the lines in his face. I don't know what Narcissus has in mind for you. He is openly against many of your methods in the arena. I know why he wishes to employ you, however. Why? Jonathan looked at him curiously. It's not a great secret, but the king's daughter has gone missing. I have a feeling that he's going to have you and perhaps several others investigate her whereabouts to see if you can find her while she's still alive. I believe he fears the worst. Why not just employ me? Does he have to purchase me? That's what I was wondering. He evidently has ulterior motives in mind other than just the rescue of his daughter. Regardless, it's none of my business. He has paid a hefty sum for you. Meyer will provide you with your remaining earnings as well as the payment that you shall receive in compensation for your services in honor to the city of Dartus. Thank you, sir. It has been an honor serving you here. I found happiness within the city's walls. Farnum Dartus gave Jonathan one final look and a wave before Meyer reminded them that the boat for Narsus would be leaving shortly. The Duke returned his attention to the performers, and that was all. 
Meyer walked Jonathan through the city of Dartus to the wharf where the ferries were loading for Cathra. Narcissus had paid for his ticket already, so he needed only to board. It's been wonderful having you around, Jonathan. Meyer bowed to Jonathan, to which Jonathan returned the favor. I believe you are going to go on to do great things. That King Narcissus has purchased you personally is proof enough of that. I hope you're right, Jonathan said. He bade Meyer farewell and made his way onto the ship. 3. Being a guest aboard an Alondron vessel was much nicer than being a prisoner. Jonathan had his own cabin and his own faculties for the term of the ride. His room was still guarded, but he was allowed to wander the ship with a guard escort, which kept any and all of the patrons from associating with him. The next morning, the boat pulled into the docks of Narsus. The sky was overcast and drizzling mildly at times. Jonathan could see the city climbing up the mountain from the docks to the capital castle. Narsus was enormous, the buildings magnificent and grand. One of the guards put Jonathan into a royal horse-drawn carriage and got in next to him. The driver made for the castle. Jonathan stuck his head out the window and watched the buildings of the city pass. The residents were wealthy entrepreneurs, hurrying to their nameless destinations that had everything to do with the game of their society. All of it seemed so tedious to Jonathan. Every single stone of this city would change over the next thousand years and the place would look unrecognizable, such is the disenchanting nature of coming from a technologically advanced society. While everything in Narsus was incredible, the architecture, the design, and layout of the streets, and organized vendors and markets, it wasn't anything he hadn't witnessed on Earth. As the carriage climbed through the city, the buildings became nicer, taller. The houses transformed into estates and the markets reverted to their interior buildings only. The drizzle turned into a light rain as they turned onto the Royal Parkway and made for the huge three-spired castle in the distance. The carriage came to a halt by the front steps of the castle. The guard got out and let Jonathan out on his side. The two hurried up the steps and the door guard opened the door for them. Jonathan and the guard entered the castle to be received by a balding man in a nice royal red doublet, holding a cane. He had a bushy brown mustache and questioning brown eyes. Good morning, you must be Jonathan Tabith, the man said to Jonathan and relieved the guard. My name is Anton. You and I will be getting acquainted over the next few hours. The king awaits. Anton turned on his heel and led the way down the main corridor of the castle. Castle Narcissus has a very colorful history that I'm certain would fascinate you. The king has very little time this morning, so the grand tour will have to wait for another occasion. It's also in everyone's best interest if you begin your new job right away. What kind of job are we talking about? Jonathan asked as Anton pushed through another set of doors. Narcissus will go over the details shortly, he said, leading Jonathan to an impressive staircase that fed the second story from a lobby where one could access whatever division of the endless castle they needed. Jonathan thought about asking Anton why the castle seemed so empty, but then remembered that it was Vinday, so naturally no one would be working. Everyone was attending the winter games at the Virago. The idea of fighting in Narcissus' Virago intrigued him. There was a cylindrical elevator on the second story. The doors opened as Jonathan and Anton walked toward it. They stepped on the lift and the elevator began to ascend. The walls disappeared to the open air and they could see the entire city as it rolled down the hillside of the island in giant steps to the massive hundred-mile bridge that extended into the distance as far as the eye could see. As quickly as the spectacular visage of the height of Alondron society had appeared, it disappeared behind another wall. The elevator came to a halt shortly after. 
They stepped off onto a level that Jonathan couldn't discern, but it seemed to be somewhere in the middle of the central castle. Anton led Jonathan down a long hall and entered the throne room. Pillars marched down the aisle to the throne where Surveys Narcissus sat. He had the snide expression of a king upon his red face as he watched Jonathan and Anton approach. The gold crown on his head glittered with jewels between the ornate carvings etched into it. Beneath the crown, Narcissus had a head of short, wavy brown hair and glittering emerald eyes. He wore a red robe that masked much of his rotund physique. There were at least twenty-five guards in the room, ten of which had crossbows trained on Jonathan. Jonathan, it's good to finally meet you, the king said. He had an amiable voice, filled with seemingly well-to-do hospitality. Jonathan dropped to one knee alongside Anton. The king gestured for them to rise. Surveys spent an uncomfortable amount of time watching Jonathan and saying nothing. I was told that you had a job for me, Jonathan broke the silence at last. The king shook his head and smiled knowingly. I know what you are. You can't hide it from me. I have nothing to hide. You'll receive only honesty from me. Tell me about Earth. What did you do there? Surveys pinned him. He had done his homework and that scared the hell out of Jonathan. Jonathan couldn't answer immediately because he didn't know where to begin for someone who had no concept of Earth and life. To explain on terms that Jonathan could understand might overwhelm Narciss, so he had to respond cautiously. I was a builder, a scientist, an artist, a philosopher, an inventor. We called ourselves astrophysicists. Jonathan smiled at the bewildered look on Narciss's face. It was just a title for all of those things combined. If you want the honest truth, I didn't spend very much time on Earth. I trained in academies in space, far away from Earth. To be all of those things I said earlier. Sheer madness, Surveys said, but somehow it came out in a respectable way. Tell me more. What was your king's name? He shifted in his seat. Jonathan swallowed. We didn't have a king. We had moved on from kings, presidents, and leaders. Those titles limited our possibilities. We had groups, circles, dedicated to the development of small areas of society, governed by higher, bigger, more influential groups and circles. No circle or group could dominate and run with an idea without the backing of the rest of the world, and those who became corrupt were stripped of their voice, meaning they could speak but their say was invalid. However, did you keep order with that kind of insubordination running rampant? Surveys Narciss asked. That's the thing. We had less insubordination and more enthusiasm about our future than we'd ever had in history. Our history books say that a lot of people were against this transition with similar skepticism, but once we made the change, we saw how much better we were doing, all of us, even the poor and hungry. We no longer have starvation on our planet. Very interesting. Narciss fixed Jonathan with an uncomfortable stare, giving Jonathan the impression that he might just have him killed for being different. Jonathan had no way of knowing, but got the feeling surveys Narciss wasn't impressed by his stories. Is there anything specific you wanted to know? Jonathan asked. No, I think that's all for now, the king said with finality. Jonathan felt a stab of disappointment, like he had let his people down in a crucial test of worthiness within the ruler of this kingdom's eyes. So, about this job then? Of course. The king stroked his chin as he considered how to broach the subject, even though Jonathan already knew what the king needed. I'm sure you've heard the rumors. My daughter has gone missing. I'm commissioning you to find her and bring her back to the castle. How long has she been missing? Jonathan asked. Three days, Narciss answered. That's not a long time for a person to be missing. Why not employ your guards to find her? 
they have more experience in these sorts of things than me, because she was kidnapped by the Cornix Bandit clan. I see you're unaware of their presence within the city, cities, surveys corrected himself, of ire. There are even a few sects in Charton. They are a highly organized group of thieves who specialize in high-priced ransom kidnappings. Their capture of Marissa is a great accomplishment for their followers. Not only do I want you to bring back my daughter, but I want you to kill the leader of this gang. As someone who is resourceful, strong of will and dexterity, and renowned as a hero of prisoners, I'm asking that you uncover and infiltrate their hideout. How you do this is up to you, so long as the leader is dead and you return my daughter alive in one piece. How are you so certain it was this Cornix gang that kidnapped her? Are you sure she didn't just run away? Marissa wouldn't run away, Surveys laughed. She'd have nowhere to run that I couldn't find her. A note with the seal of Cornix was dropped on the doorstep yesterday morning. It's still not a certainty that the gang kidnapped her, but that's their calling card. If someone's gone missing and that shows up, you need to act quickly. That's why I'm hiring you. And I wanted to give you the opportunity to prove yourself. Your kind has not made a very good impression with my people to put things lightly. Jonathan took a deep breath. I will do my best if it is your desire. Then Anton will outfit you with travel equipment, and a royal seal that will allow you to get into places you might not otherwise be able to get into. I'm also giving you a time limit. You have five days. If by the sixth day you have not returned with my daughter and some proof that the leader of Cornix is dead, I will have your poster added to the walls of wanted faces within every district of the city. I will have no choice but to assume that you failed and are dead, or that you've renounced the title I've given you and have joined with the bandits. You will also be solely responsible for the disposition we hold toward you and your people. As Earth's diplomat to our world, it's in your kind's best interest to do whatever possible to please me. Understood, Jonathan said, hiding his despise for the authoritarian air Surveys brandished with every statement. Do not fail me. Surveys stared at Jonathan for a few seconds and then dismissed him. Anton received him at the threshold of the room and led him to the armory of the castle. In a long washroom where high knights and royal guards were groomed, Jonathan's facial hair was cleanly shaved and his hair cropped to a fine jet-black cut. After, they entered the armory. You're to return everything you leave with, particularly whatever weapons you take. How you prepare for this is up to you, but you have free reign of the armory to take what you feel will be necessary. Jonathan had thought that the Alondrons were relatively primitive, but seeing their finest equipment changed his outlook. The Under Armour alone was going to change everything. It was a red, solid-woven fiber mesh uniform that folded to his figure and allowed him to wear anything over it without the consistent problem of chafing. It was also fireproof. He wore one pair and carried two extra in his travel pack. Over the uniform, he wore a dark black leather cuirass and matching leggings and boots. The boots went all the way up to his calves and had silver buckles. He pulled matching silver-studded gauntlets over his forearms and hands. He wore travel gloves and a travel cloak over his shoulders. In the mirror nearby, he looked like an Alondron hitman. He looked the best he had looked since he was 22 years old, and had just debuted his masterpiece formula that would make him trillions. This felt somehow more earned. As for weapons, Jonathan carried an array of throwing knives in his bag, two long swords and sheaths across his back, and the travel pack Anton had prepared for him with essentials. Anton had changed and wore a travel cloak. I'll be assisting you as we gather information today about Marissa's whereabouts before she disappeared. All right, Jonathan said. It's not a job I volunteer by choice. 
but there is no one else who knows about Marissa's secretive nightlife. He scowled in disgust. I was ordered to watch and protect Marissa as she went on these evening excursions. There is more to this story than you know. I must be candid and explain that I have a small, involuntary part in her disappearance. Jonathan listened to Anton warily. Anton looked to his left and right. Let us leave the walls of the castle before I continue further. Jonathan was allowed a quick meal in the large, empty dinner hall, fresh potatoes, corn on the cob, and steak, before Anton called him out. He followed him down the steps and the two entered the city streets. It was midday and everyone was either on their way home early or just finishing lunch. The rain had returned to a drizzle. Anton seemed to know where he was going, but it wasn't toward the front of the city. Once they had put a good distance between them and the castle, Anton began talking again. Marissa was exploring. It's what young girls do. I was instructed to keep these sorts of things from her, but I felt that by allowing her to do as she wanted, she might become a more humble person. Exploring what? The city? Jonathan asked. Sometimes, he sighed, but mostly the beds of cadets from the academy nearby. And you were okay with this? Who was I to stop her? I'm not her father. Her father never gave a damn enough to figure all of this out for himself. So I said nothing, and condoned her behavior lest she discover my following her. I don't regret my decision in the least. Yet you mentioned you were involved in her disappearance, Jonathan said. Anton took a deep breath. Before I explain the next part, I need to confirm that you trust me. Why? Jonathan asked. Because, look what I did for Marissa. I was ordered to coddle her and keep her from leaving the castle grounds. Instead, I let her do what she pleased. She's a responsible person who has rights and ideas like you and me. It's clear that I don't have the rights you speak of, but what's your point? It involves you in a similar situation. I have no intention of bringing harm to you once you hear what I have to say. Do I have your trust? Anton asked as they turned down an alley between buildings. They were still in the upper sector of the city. All right, I trust that you have genuinely good morals as far as respecting the freedom of others. Whether I would sleep with my back to you is another matter. Is that good enough? I suppose it will have to do. They turned on to another main street. Anton took a minute to gather his thoughts. The night of your victory over Remus, I was ordered to go to Dartus, buy you, and bring you back here. I am aware of the transaction, Jonathan said. Anton looked to the sky. At that time, we did not know that Marissa had been kidnapped. Jonathan took a second to understand what he was talking about. It finally clicked. You were ordered to buy me so that I could be brought to Narciss and executed. Jonathan laughed. I see. This is a suicide mission. All that garbage he fed me about me being the diplomat to Earth was just motivation to give it my best, but no big loss if I go down in the line of fire. I should have known better than to go through with a political mission for a laundrons. Anton shrugged. I suppose there's nothing good waiting for me when I get back should I succeed, Jonathan said. I don't believe that, said Anton. If you disappear, you'll only be proving that the king is right about you and your kind. If you should bring his daughter back safely, how do you think he'll receive you? Who knows? I can't please anyone of authority on this planet no matter how hard I try to prove myself. So, will you help us? Anton asked, looking to Jonathan genuinely. Only on one condition, and you'll run back and tell your king to find my reward once I leave the city walls. 
I will bring back Marissa Narcissus and the head of the leader of Cornix if you find a young girl named Aya who was sold into slavery by Bruto, the champion of Chryseus. You have time enough to track her down and bring her back to me. Anton didn't look ready to go for the proposition. How can we be sure you'll succeed? Trust me, Anton. If she's still alive, I will bring her back, Jonathan said. I'll do as you ask, Anton sighed. I can't promise it will be within five days, however. As quickly as you can. We're nearly at the Academy Bar. Go wait in the alley nearby, said Anton as they approached a large corner building that looked like the host of many late-night brawls and celebrations. I'll bring our informant out in a minute. Jonathan split away from Anton and walked past the pedestrians. Everything felt odd for some reason. He realized what it was after a few minutes. They weren't looking at him. He was donned in the garb of an Alondron and spoke the native tongue fluently. The few people who did meet his eye looked away quickly. He entered the alley behind the bar and waited for Anton to return. About five minutes later, Anton returned, clutching the arm of a boy with blue eyes and short sandy blonde hair. His lip was busted and bleeding. He didn't look older than twenty. I'd like you to meet Frent, one of Marissa's drunken mistakes. Frent, this is Jonathan. He has a few questions for you. Frent's eyes widened in horror at the sight of Jonathan. He evidently knew who Jonathan was. Anton shoved Frent into the wall nearby. I didn't know she was the princess, I swear. I thought she was just some poor kid. I'm glad you're going to make this easy, Frent, said Jonathan, trying to play the good interrogator since Anton had taken on the role of bad interrogator. Anton and the royal guards aren't going to your leader's hideout. I will be going on behalf of the city and Narciss family. They're not pleased with your group's endeavors, but they're not bringing the hammer down, yet. I am to collect the princess, and then everyone's going to go about their business, understand? If they wanted to take you down, they would have already. Friend tilted his head back and laughed. You really are from another planet, aren't you? Jonathan cocked his brow at Friend. You really think it's that simple? Friend asked, leveling his gaze to Jonathan's as Anton held him in place against the wall. Easy as pie, my friend. Jonathan got close to Friend's face, so close he could see the boy's freckles on his nose. You could take the audience of an entire Virago arena and place them between me and Marissa Narciss. I would still walk out with Marissa Narciss alive. That's how sure I am that it doesn't matter how advanced you think your militia is. Shove it up your ass, Frent spat. Anton pushed him into the wall. Jonathan held up a hand to Anton for him to desist. That won't be necessary. Jonathan stared into Frent's blue eyes. He said nothing. Frent blinked uncomfortably. He balled his fists and began fighting Anton, but to no avail. His eyes never left Jonathan's. Jonathan's gaze infected his and entered his mind. Frent's body went lax. He stopped blinking. The information inside his mind was locked away, but that's not what Jonathan was after. To know that someone has infiltrated your walls and is knocking on your door is a scary thing, not something that anyone enjoys being subject to. Frent was no exception. Tell me what I want to know, Frent. Where is your hideout? Frent blinked and forced his sight to the wall in front of him. I can't. I won't. Don't make me break in, kid. I can't promise there will be anything left if I do, Jonathan said. Frent swallowed and closed his eyes. South of the bridge, about 150 miles southeast. And to Cetus Field, Anton said. There's nothing there. No one can bypass the Bramble Reefs. There's a way, Frent said. 
I followed them before. I tried to get in, but I couldn't figure out how. What do you mean you couldn't figure out how to get in? Anton asked. I've never been inside. I'm just a pip. You don't get to go into the hideout until you're at least a carrion. Two levels higher than mine, Frint said. I just captured the girl because she pissed me off and I thought she was a nobody. If I'd have known she was the princess, I would have stayed the hell away. He's telling the truth, Jonathan said. I think we have enough to go with. Thank you, friend. Anton, let him go. Hope I never see you again, boy. Anton growled and pushed Frint down the alley. He stumbled and nearly fell down on his face, but pulled into a run and disappeared around the corner. Were you really going to break into that boy's mind? Can you really do that? Anton asked Jonathan. Not that I'm aware of. Jonathan smiled. Anton thanked Jonathan for his assistance and confidence before returning to the castle. The sun rested in the middle of the afternoon day sky. Jonathan was alone for the first time, walking amidst the pedestrians down the street of one of the largest inhabited cities on the planet. By a lawn-drawn and human standards, Jonathan was free to roam wherever he pleased for the next five days. He could go anywhere, at any time, and ask anyone anything. It was a beautiful luxury that he never believed he'd have on Earth, much less a laundronon. Granted, five days was not a very long time, especially if he was to infiltrate a secret bandit hideout, so he would have to make the best of the time he had. He entered the first bar he found. There were a few patrons. The laundrons were just as keen to use young women from the local university as the humans did on Earth. Jonathan got a few drinks at the bar. It was the first time he'd had alcohol since he was on the Enigma. He noticed the waitresses clustering together behind the bar at times. One of them kept looking at him. She had long red hair and bright green eyes. Jonathan drank several more drinks and felt nothing. He knew very well what it was like to be drunk from his college days, and this wasn't it. Can I get you another drink? The waitress with the red hair asked, leaning over the bar. No, I don't think so, Jonathan said. What do you know about the princess's disappearance? The girl looked taken aback at the question. I know they think it's the Cornix gang, but other than that, it's just unfortunate. Where are you from? She asked. She was nervous. A long way from here, Jonathan said, leaning forward. I just got this job from the king, and I have five days to do said job. I can do it in two, so I'm looking to have a little fun tonight. I'm kind of a prisoner other than during this five-day window, so seizing the day is my goal. A prisoner? The girl laughed. What did you do? Jonathan smiled. I'm a murderer. I kill people in the Virago to make other people rich. I have a small fortune of my own that I'll be able to tap into once I'm no longer a prisoner, but that's not going to happen in the foreseeable future. They did give me a quarter of my earnings to do this job I'm doing. How do you like that? I make my own money and they spoon it to me like it's an allowance. Jonathan talked to the girl until the bar filled with patrons who had finished with work. Her name was Threya and she was working at the bar to pay her way through school. By the time her shift was over, she was head over heels in love with Jonathan. She took him back to her apartment during the twilight of the evening, kissing him before she could even get the door open. Several hours later, as Jonathan rested next to her, she rolled a cigarette and began smoking. Jonathan had never smelled the aroma before. He knew people smoked different herbs and plants the way they did on Earth, but he had never tried anything since no one had ever offered. Freya passed the cigarette to Jonathan. He pulled and felt an odd sense of relaxation course through his body. What is it? Jonathan asked, coughing a little. Ceralia grass, from the fields of Ceralia. Freya pulled on the cigarette. 
Jonathan pulled again, watching the end of the cigarette turn a bright orange and smolders to smoke. When he breathed out, he stared at a place on the wall for a long time, hearing music in the distance. He didn't focus on the music at first, but once he did, it went away. Did you hear that? Jonathan asked. Threa smiled and shook her head. I've been a prisoner on this planet since I arrived. I guess I have been too, Threa said, not taking his meaning literally. He watched the tangerine-lavender mixture of moonlight cascade through the window across the bed. Have you had fun this evening? She looked to Jonathan. More than I've had in a long while. Jonathan sat with her bedsheets wrapped about his waist as he stared at the wall ahead. First, he thought about Elizabeth, how she had gone like a candle being blown out. His mind wandered to Aya. He wondered if she was even alive, and if she would be okay if he could get her to a safe place. He felt that he owed her since her life had fallen into complete ruin on his account. And then he thought of Marissa. He had never even seen Marissa before, but he imagined what she looked like. He conjured the image of a young girl with light blue eyes, a kind face, and brown hair. He saw her struggle, saw her being hauled into the back of a carriage by a group of men, and then she was taken. Her aura was still in this city. He could sense it. When Jonathan would later meet Marissa, he would find that his mental image of her was nearly spot on. What are you thinking about? Threa asked. How much pain I've caused, Jonathan said. How many people I've hurt and killed. It's enough to drive a person insane. I find it hard to believe you're capable of these things, Threa said, lacing her fingers in his as she rested her head of red hair on his chest. You can be so gentle and seemingly at peace. Jonathan held her close to him, knowing that it was a dream, a blessed moment away from the reality of his life before he returned to the killing field. Surveys had unleashed him on this gang with the idea that he would be killed. For Jonathan, it wasn't his end, it was just an impossibly difficult task that he would have to execute flawlessly. Another battle, another game to figure out how to win. He was tired of the games. Tired of working for people who had no right to work him or punish him. They always asked for more, pushing him down to a place where they could stamp on him and keep him working. He had gained no honor. The king himself brought Jonathan for the sole purpose of putting him to death publicly, because Noah Londron is capable of what Jonathan can do. That's a scary thought to the Alondrons, the idea that someone might be able to stop being controlled and start taking control. He was a fool to ever think they would accept him. Come with me, Jonathan said to Threa. Let's run away from Narsus and live in the wild. Where we'll go, they'll never find us. I can keep you safe and we'll just keep going until we find the perfect place. Jonathan could tell that the idea made Threa uncomfortable. She had fallen for him, but not in love with him. That would be a mistake. I have a job, a house, and friends here. I'm only a few years away from finishing at the university. I can't convince you to come with me. I'm afraid not, Jonathan. You have a job to do, and so do I. Do you want me to go? Jonathan asked. Please don't. Threa curled up closer to him and wrapped her arm about his neck. Just stay with me for the night. You can leave in the morning, but I get so lonely here by myself. My family lives in Cathra to the south. All right then, Jonathan whispered in her ear through her hair and ignored the tickling of it on his nose. He drifted to sleep for a little while. He woke with her on top of him once more, clutching one of his hands to her breast. Fog covered the windows, turning the orange moon to a harsh glare through the crystal condensation. 
They remained together throughout the night until they could stay awake no longer. The next morning, Jonathan followed Threa out into the cool, early morning air and watched her lock her front door. He walked her to the bar. Once they arrived, she turned and smiled. I suppose this is goodbye then, she met Jonathan's eyes. They shared a passionate kiss, and Jonathan bid her farewell. And just like that, Jonathan was alone again. He wandered the streets in a brooding mood. A nagging part of him told him that finding the princess was optimal, that he should get going before it might be too late, but he already knew that the Cornix gang wasn't about to touch so much as a hair on Marissa Narcissus's head, not with a bounty as a possible reward. He thought about rescuing her, but not bringing her back to the castle immediately. She wouldn't mind being away for a few days, and in his company he could keep her safe. This was all assuming that rescuing her would be as simple as busting a few skulls and perhaps taking down a small army. Should he even fight the Cornix gang just because he could defeat them? They weren't his enemy. If their deal is kidnapping high-profile victims, then it's just business as usual. The way hacking on Earth was an illegal industry in itself. It is legal, but it's also practiced. Jonathan wandered the city of Narsus until late morning. He found what on earth would have been considered a bakery and cafe. He got a loaf of bread and a bowl of eggs. Both were delicious. While he was eating, an employee for the bakery arrived late. He had short, sandy brown hair and light blue eyes. Jonathan listened to the exchange between him and his supervisor in the Alondron tongue. It was apparent to Jonathan that the manager believed the boy to be simple-minded and incapable of thinking correctly. Jonathan knew immediately that the boy was a human and having trouble speaking the language. He also didn't understand how to do the job. What made everything worse was the boy's short temper. Jonathan felt a fury billow from the boy in a metallic radiation. As the manager continued complaining about the boy's prowess, Jonathan watched the condiment shakers on the table around the cafe begin dancing and rumbling. A customer called the manager's attention and everything calmed down again. The boy grabbed a broom and began sweeping. Jonathan looked at him. His head shot up and he turned to look at Jonathan. Jonathan nodded his head toward the door and left the cafe. About ten minutes later, the boy emerged from the cafe and found Jonathan standing in the alley. Do I know you from some place? He asked in English. Jonathan Tabith probably saw me on the Enigma, Jonathan said, watching the pedestrians pass from the alley. I think I remember. I'm starting to forget things from the old world. That's what I call the time before we came to this awful place. My name's Luke. Luke Myers. You ready to blow this joint? Hell yes. What did you have in mind? Luke said eagerly. I need an assistant for a job I have to do. I can pay you enough so that you won't have to work for the next few months. I want you to quit this job. Jonathan nodded to the bakery. Or come back when you understand the language. But the way you're talking, they'll be on to you within a week. All right, Luke said. Do you have people who are watching you who might wonder where you are? Do you need to gather anything before we leave? I asked because it could be a bit before we're back here. No one will care if I'm not back for a few days. Other than my clothes, I have a blunt knife under my mattress near where I stay. That's it. Come on, let's get you into some nicer clothes and get you a decent weapon, Jonathan said. The next hour, they left a boutique with Luke wearing a nice gold and brown doublet over a black long-sleeved shirt. He wore a pair of forest green leggings, black travel boots, and a matching pair of gloves. Jonathan took him to a smith and told him to choose whatever weapon he wanted to learn to use. He surprised Jonathan by picking two steel bars, each two feet long and six inches in circumference. 
Jonathan knew them well because he had been smashed in the face with one in the Chryseus prison. Jonathan bought a set of short swords for the sole purpose of getting Luke trained in close combat. It was early afternoon when Jonathan asked, Are you ready to leave Narsus? I think so, Luke replied. We have rations for up to three days between both of us, equipment, and a change of clothes. Would you like a travel pack so that you can carry your own bedroll? That won't be necessary, said Luke. I've gotten used to sleeping on the ground. And I like traveling lightly. Makes me feel less vulnerable. Suit yourself, said Jonathan as they made for the Hundred Mile Bridge, the entrance to the city of Narsus. How did you get here? Did you walk the whole bridge? That I did. We should take the tram since you have official clearance, but if you want to stay anonymous, you have to walk, Luke said. 4. The sky above the bridge was an incredible blue. They could smell the salt of the sea in the air as they found the dock for the tram and ferry. They could also take a boat across, but it would take close to four hours where the tram would take one. The ferry was also more expensive, and Jonathan still had to pay Luke. He had already decided that he would probably give Luke everything he had before returning to his servitude. Luke was free, an unknown beggar laundronon in the eyes of the natives. Money would do him well and help him survive. Jonathan would be well taken care of within the castle walls, and he still had more money to his name. The tram was the first bit of technology that reminded Jonathan of Earth. They had faster methods of civilian travel in his solar system, but it was nice to be working with equipment resembling that of his time period. It made him wonder why the Alondrons harbored technology the way they did. They clearly had the technological advancements and currency-based society to continue modifying and updating civilization, but they used their technology sparingly, reserved it for the wealthy without utilizing the speed of access it could allow in all aspects of everyone's daily life. It was obstinate behavior, similar to the way Earth's government spent 200 years bickering amidst its ranks while their cities burned around the globe between the 22nd and 24th century. The humans spent the hundred years following those nightmarish centuries neutralizing the government with the democracy circles that were still in play before Jonathan left. The Alondrons were still in their state of ignorance with no sign of changing, which meant it was only a matter of time before a revolution would begin. Jonathan clutched the bars next to his seat as the tram fired across the bridge. When it stopped, the two got off feeling like they were still in motion. They left the dock office and paused on the side of the road to catch their bearings. Behind them, beyond the bridge, they could see the city and castle looming on the horizon beyond the sea. Ahead rolled the hills and forests of ire beneath the cloud-dotted sky. They followed along the coastline to the southeast. As they moved farther away from civilization, the animals grew larger. Everything began to grow bigger, even the trees. Jonathan saw a bear behind the tree line stick its head up from the forest before scurrying deeper into the ever-climbing treetops. Strange birds with four, some with six, wings flew along the coast. Monstrous crabs skittered up and down the beach nearby. Wind passed through Jonathan, bringing with it the aroma of rain. I probably should have left last night, Jonathan sighed. Might have bypassed all this weather. It had just started raining when a muscular creature, nearly all white, on all fours, came bounding across the sandy beach toward Jonathan and Luke. It went for Luke, but Jonathan shoved Luke out of the way and stood between them. It roared at Jonathan, massive green eyes contorted in rage. Jonathan stared at it, his hand on the hilt of one of his swords. The thing's floppy ears folded back, but only for a moment. 
If it had considered leaving them alone, its hunger eliminated the option of flight. The thing lashed with its claw, but Jonathan drew steel and slashed. The creature ducked and recoiled with a vicious kick to Jonathan's face that threw him to the ground. The pale monster mounted Jonathan and grappled the sides of his face, strengthening its thumbs over Jonathan's eyes, meaning to blind him. Luke tackled the beast from Jonathan. It kicked Luke off as Jonathan grabbed his blade and regained his stance. Jonathan sank his blade into the beast's breast with both hands before it could rise. It clawed at Jonathan, scratching his face, but it fell lax, and its eyes rolled into the back of its head as blood seeped into the endless sponge of the beach. Damn! Luke clutched his chest where the creature had kicked him. Wendigo, Jonathan said, feeling his heart pounding maddeningly. They continued down the beach toward the horizon. Several hours of walking later, Jonathan saw the first signs of Antacita's field as bramble and snakes of ivy extended away from a strange structure in the distance. At first, Jonathan thought it was the remnants of a massive ancient tree, but as they trudged closer through the thickening coils of bramble, it became too wide, too vast. It was an old tower, covered with the overgrowth that can only take root from years of neglect. That must be it, Jonathan said, pausing upon a cliff ledge to drink some water from his flask. Below them, the ropes of bramble surged over the landscape, churning in waves beneath the spread of the tower. What is it we're here to do? Luke looked to Jonathan. We're here to find a girl that went missing in Narsus. Ah, a kidnapping. Classic. And of course, you needed a boy wonder to help you out. More like a distraction to draw fire, Jonathan said jokingly. Luke's face went a shade whiter. Jonathan clapped him on the back. We're here to peacefully request that her captors release her into our custody. And if they aren't willing? Luke asked. The wind blew a crop of his hair over his forehead. That's where I come in, Jonathan said, walking forward. He dropped off the cliff and began jumping from log to log of the thorny bramble field. Luke followed. The two moved like ants beneath the great shadow of the tower as the rain clouds dispersed and slowly drifted across the blue afternoon sky. Birds fluttered from their roosts high upon the tower and descended on the field mice skittering between the gnarled roots below. Jonathan stopped when he noticed something splat next to him. He saw the corpse of a bird, and then saw the mass of feathers and bones. Thousands of dead birds littered a circular area about three miles in diameter. Another bird crash-landed into the ring of death. Jonathan looked to the sky and scanned for whatever could be causing the strange anomaly, but didn't see anything out of the ordinary. It was as though the birds were dropping out of the sky in a coordinated area that seemed random. Luke caught up to Jonathan and paused at his side. Bird crap everywhere! The two maneuvered around the foul equivalent to Earth's Bermuda Triangle and began the last hour it would take to reach the tower. The two stopped when they nearly fell into a channel that had been carved with use. Fresh cart tracks covered the sandy path that led to the open mouth of the derelict monument. So there's no secret, they just hide the entrance. Jonathan noted a wall of dead bramble that Friend probably would have found if he had scouted through the area for an entrance to the Cornix hideout. Assuming Friend hadn't sent Jonathan on a wild goose chase to the most out-of-the-way place he could imagine. Dropping into the channel, Jonathan and Luke dusted themselves off and took a break to eat some jerky and trail mix. They surveyed the empty channel and the vacant entrance where the open mouth of the tower stood. Even with Jonathan's heightened sense of awareness, he couldn't sense anyone guarding the entrance. It made him nervous because it meant there could be traps that he or Luke might not anticipate. 
Jonathan took a bite of jerky and fished in his pack for the flint. He took a moment to sharpen the blade of his sword. Boom. The birds roosting in the tower scattered into the sky. The sound was quiet and far away, but they distinctly heard something very large crash into something else. It had come from within the tower. Boom. It happened again. They stared at the blackness beyond the threshold. A cloud of dust wafted out and over the front steps of the tower. Boom. The two gathered their things and got to their feet. The pounding continued and steadily grew heavier as they made their way toward the entrance to the tower. Boom. Got a plan? Luke asked. Boom. Not really. Jonathan shrugged. There might be a back entrance, but I'm not sure I want to fight my way through the bramble anymore. We wouldn't have enough light to come back around in the event that there isn't a back entrance. Boom. The sound became louder. The two had reached the steps. They cautiously began ascending, checking each step to make sure they weren't tricked. Everything was too simple. Not a single trap. They stood in the vast doorway to the tower. The light behind them filled a portion of the foyer. There was a rusty gate at the transom, but the bramble had taken it as it had taken everything else in the place. Giant vines of ivy curved through the corridor ahead like obese snakes. Thorny bramble gripped the walls in layers and ripped through the floors of the pathway. Boom! They could feel the wind of something as the pounding perpetuated. Jonathan and Luke made their way around the vines and entered a hallway that turned at the end of sight. Boom! The noise cracked through the air in a perfect tempo. They turned with the corridor. What they saw in the room ahead was perplexing. There were at least twenty men standing around, staring at a giant door. The door seemed to climb all the way to the high ceiling of this floor of the tower. Jonathan noticed that they had stacked several junked hawks on top of one another in the far corner of the room. Boom! The tall doors rattled and shook on their hinges behind a bar lock. Jonathan and Luke slowly entered the room and stood about thirty yards behind the men. They didn't see a girl anywhere. Jonathan noted that none of the men looked the age of the princess. Boom! One man stood closer to the door than the others. He had short red hair and wore a gray trench coat. His lips were parted and his attention was narrowed as he stared at the door. Boom! The door shook again. Two giant black shadows interrupted the light gleaming from beneath the door. Boom! One of the men craned his neck and noticed Jonathan and Luke standing there. Jonathan stood with his arms crossed, watching everything. The man turned around. When he did, everyone else turned. The whole event was surreally odd, because the men looked aghast at the invasion, but not hostile. They seemed far too preoccupied with other issues. Boom! The leader with the red hair glanced over his shoulder, saw Jonathan, and turned around to look at him. Boom! Who the hell are you? The gang leader waved at Jonathan. Boom! My name is Jonathan. I'm here to... Boom! I'm here for King Narcissus's daughter. Jonathan finished. Boom! The gang leader grinned and stepped aside with his hands outstretched toward the door that they had been staring at earlier. Boom! She's all yours, Jonathan. Go get her if you want, he said. Boom! Just lift that there bar lock and go fetch her yourself. Boom! Jonathan looked at him skeptically. What's behind the door? Boom! A freaking giant. You know what? Boom! The man continued. 
If you want her, kill the giant and she's all yours. I won't even stop you if you walk out of this place with her in hand. Boom! Fine, Jonathan said, tossing his pack aside. The men looked taken aback at his response. Boom! You might clear a space, Jonathan said as he approached the door. Boom! 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 Jonathan waited for the next pound with his arm ready on the bar lock. Boom! He threw the bar lock up and jumped to the side of the threshold, out of the trajectory of the door. Boom! The doors flew open. Bang! They slammed against the wall and flapped back on the massive figure standing in the doorway. The giant marched through the loose, obstructive doors. It stood ten times larger than Jonathan and five times the width. It had a massive horn sticking out of its forehead above its beady black eyes, and arrows sticking out of its chest where the Cornix gang had met their mark to no success. It wore a ratty mix of green and yellow fabric over a pieced-together chainmail assortment. It hadn't yet seen Jonathan. Jonathan grabbed one of the doors from the wall and broke it from its hinges. The giant turned to the sound in time to see Jonathan smash the door over its cranium. The door broke to splinters, leaving two sharp pieces in Jonathan's grasp, but doing no visible damage to the creature. It backhanded Jonathan, knocking the wood pieces out of his hands. Jonathan spiraled across the room and flew into a patch of bramble. The giant marched toward the others as the gang leader swore. Jonathan emerged from the bramble. Option two. He charged the giant and slammed into his calf as hard as he could with his shoulder behind the weight of his whole body, crippling the creature to one knee. Jonathan grabbed his sword, and in a single cleave from his sheath, he sliced off the creature's leg at the knee. The leg fell to the floor and turned to sand as the monster regenerated a new leg just as quickly. Without skipping a beat, the giant hooked Jonathan with the whole meat of his right, sending him flying into another patch of bramble. Luke stood with the rest of the Cornix gang. He had his weapons in hand, but after watching Jonathan's failed attempts, he didn't know how much good they were going to be in this situation. Jonathan climbed to his feet. He had maintained hold of his sword, but wasn't sure how to proceed. An appendage would obviously grow back, so he had to assume its head was its weak point. Unfortunately, it was three stories high. Jonathan's eyes flicked over the room. There were torn drapes by ceiling-high windows lining the walls, but they were too old to support his weight. He noticed the fat bramble creeping all over the place. He thought he might be able to get up higher and get to the giant's head that way. Jonathan ran up a vine of thicker bramble that curved around the room. He dove onto the giant's neck and raised his sword. The face of the giant appeared impossibly from the side of its head as it roared. The air from its mouth wavered violently. As though he were pushed, Jonathan soared off its shoulder and crashed through a wooden table. His back pounded in pain as he got up again. The rest of the group had either fled the tower or had been backed into a corner by the giant. Luke glared at the giant with his steel sticks in hand. His face contorted in cold concentration. Smoke began to billow from his arms and clothes. Jonathan gaped at Luke in awe as the sticks in his hands became red hot. The giant smashed one of the men next to him with one foot. Luke jammed the steel rod into the monster's knee. Glass spiderwebs sizzled through the sandy construction of the giant's form. It cried out before Luke shattered its kneecap with the other stick. The leg broke off and regenerated again, just as before. Jonathan got up. Luke, his head! Aim for his head! The giant threw his hand back to swipe Luke, but he ducked. 
I'll distract him, Jonathan yelled and stabbed the giant in the stomach with his sword. It sank into the sand uselessly. Luke ran up the same vine Jonathan had run up earlier. Fire burned up his arms as his clothes smoldered to tatters. The giant raised both hands together to smash Jonathan in a single blow. The flesh of Luke's hands were a grotesque, blackish purple as he heated the steel bars to an impossibly hot temperature. He jumped onto the giant's shoulders before it could bring its hands down onto Jonathan and stabbed both sticks into its neck. Luke screamed as the searing black charred his hands and arms to maintain the output of temperature. The giant's expression filled with horror as it grappled its neck, mashing and grinding Luke into its sandy form. Jonathan charged the giant's leg again. He dropped it to its knees. He scanned the room in microseconds. He caught sight of a giant pillar in the corner of the room. Half of it was buried beneath a pile of bramble, but Jonathan was able to wrench the whole construct free. He wanted to warn Luke to move, but he was being suffocated within the giant's neck as it tightened its grip to kill him. Jonathan had to act or he might not get another chance. He swung back and heaved the large broken pillar into the giant's lower body. Its form fell over, the head busting to sand as the body disintegrated permanently. Luke lay sprawled on the floor, unable to rise. Jonathan hurried over to him. Blood oozed from his lips. He clutched his ribs, trying to breathe without pain. He met Jonathan's eyes. We get it, he choked. We got it, Jonathan said. Only three men remained, one of whom was the gang leader. They stared at Jonathan and Luke with curiosity. That was incredible, the leader said. You guys trashed this place. My name's Cantor. I believe we had a deal, and that was that you could take the princess if you could kill the giant. She's all yours, if you can find her. Jonathan stood up from his crouched position next to Luke. Tell me why you had a giant locked up in your hideout. We had the princess. Had being the key word, Cantor explained. She split out on us after we got her here. Girl's an escape artist if I've ever seen one. She escaped through the trap door at the top of the ladder and... Cantor's eyes trailed to the side. And? Jonathan asked. And nobody goes through the trapdoor because there's really nothing up there. There's something you're not explaining, Jonathan said. Because he really doesn't know, said a man standing next to Cantor. He had short black hair and glasses over his brown eyes. Who are you? Jonathan asked. My name's Lex, and I'm not much of a bandit, but I did work for a Veneficus for a summer, the man answered. Of an efficus, like a magician or sorcerer? Jonathan wondered skeptically. Right, a sorcerer. He had all sorts of strange spells and enchantments. There are a lot of enchantments in that room through the trap door. No one goes up there because you never know what might happen to you. I'm curious now, Jonathan said. You're free to go up and see for yourself, Cantor said. Jonathan made his way for the room where the giant had entered. You still didn't explain the giant. He saw through the doorway, the ladder on the wall behind the dilapidated main hall. Sure enough, there was a trapdoor at the top. I think this tower used to belong to a sorcerer, said Lux. He probably left after Narciss became too large. How do you know he's still not here? Jonathan asked. Oh, we know, said Cantor. We've been in here for a year and a half. We'd have seen something. The giant didn't appear until that girl went through the trapdoor. Then it just appeared out of nowhere. We ran in here, barricaded the door, and that's when you showed up to save the day. Jonathan went back to Luke's side. 
His flesh was beginning to turn pink again, as Jonathan figured it would. He probably had a few broken ribs. Jonathan didn't know how that would heal, but Luke wouldn't be able to go with him any further. I can stay with your friend, Lex said. I have a few remedies that might help him recover more effectively. That would be wonderful. I'm on a tight schedule to bring the princess back, so I need to keep moving. Go on ahead. Luke cringed at the feeling in his chest. I'll be fine here. Think I may have exhausted my usefulness on that giant anyway. He tried to laugh, but it turned into a cough. I was hoping to get you back to Narciss at least, Jonathan said. Just find the girl before she gets herself killed. I will. Jonathan met Lex's eye. If he's dead when I come back, there's nowhere you can go where I won't find you. That's a promise. Lex and Cantor said nothing. Jonathan took it as a sign of acknowledgement. He made his way to the ladder beneath the trap door and gazed up to where Marissa Narciss had disappeared. Beginning his ascent, the tiled floor grew farther away from him. He reached the trap door and noticed another bar lock. It reminded him of the old attic entries on older earthen buildings. He unlatched the bar lock and allowed the trap door to fall open. He kept climbing. The door beneath him snapped closed, and Jonathan was trapped. 5. When Jonathan reached the top of the ladder, he had to turn around in order to climb up and out of the ladder well onto the tiled floor. To the naked eye, the room seemed like a large loft with half the walls weathered by time. There were two apparent reasons why Jonathan didn't believe what he was seeing. The first was that, in spite of the walls being torn away and the high elevation, he felt and heard no wind. The second reason was the complete lack of bramble. From the outside, the bramble had consumed the entire tower to the very tip. The hardwood floor of the room looked as though it had been polished before the owner of the tower had vacated. Jonathan took a step forward and made his way for the broken ledge at the end of the room. He noticed the wall of wavering air when he moved. It was a globular static plane, the light gleaming off it in places. Squinting through the material, he saw the distant form of a black bird swim out of the sky and shatter its neck on apparently nothing before falling to the pile on the ground that he and Luke had seen earlier. His hand passed through the field easily, but there was a certain discomfort involved with leaving it in the force field. Withdrawing it, he rotated his palm to reveal that it hadn't been harmed. The princess of Narciss had been here. He could sense her presence. He felt it near the bar in Narciss, and when he and Anton had interrogated Frint, the familiarity of it told him he was going the right direction. Jonathan took a deep breath, closed his eyes, and stepped through the barrier. Sonic warmth rattled the ions in his body and blood. It didn't hurt, but it didn't feel right either. A draining sensation flooded through his stomach and chest, down to his knees and feet. He was slowed to an impossibly lethargic speed, like moving through a drape of molasses. Opening his eyes, he saw orange wavering light, like seeing the tinny warble of crackling fire from underwater. Lifting his hand, he saw the fabric of his being flickering, struggling to maintain existence in the otherworldly plane. All at once, the discomfort of the experience stopped. Jonathan fell to one knee and gripped the sides of his arms, his whole body trembling with shock. Rising to his feet, he surveyed himself. He was fine and whole, standing on the edge of a metallic platform that was connected to the tower. The breath left his chest as he stared at the impossible sight before him. Hovering high over the field of bramble below was a massive floating island. 
a huge chain linked to the floating tower of earth as though anchoring it to a fat iron ring that had been mounted on the edge of the metallic platform. Ivy descended from the edges and waterfalls flowed majestically from the sides, disappearing into the barrier surrounding and masking the odd vision from plain sight. High atop the island of earth, the black turrets of a mysterious manor peered at him. Jonathan was speechless. He had never seen anything so blatantly supernatural before. Land was too heavy to float and had no need to be anchored down for any reason. The sheer defiance of physics was an insult to everything Jonathan had come to know and understand. It also meant that he was at a major disadvantage. He wanted to leave this place and pretend he had never come across it. He noticed an opening in the cliffs around the chain. The chain itself was large enough and at a slight incline. It wouldn't be difficult to traverse. Jonathan hoisted himself onto the giant ring and began his ascent. As he moved, hand over hand, he could see the top of the Bramble Tower alongside him. Below, the Bramble of Antecitas Field stretched to the strand of beach to the southwest. To the west, the sun made its way for the line of ocean at the edge of sight. Jonathan could barely make out the shadows of Narsus City to the northwest. As he pulled himself up the chain toward the opening in the island, birds cracked into the force field shielding the spectacle from sight. Whoever had constructed this luxurious fantasy had little regard or respect for the natural order of things. Jonathan hauled himself up the chain to the shadow of the island. Sweat broke out over his brow as he paused to look down. He could barely see the platform from where he had been before. He entered the channel leading through the floating mountain. He swore, wishing he hadn't worn so many layers. The shade of the inner mountain was cool and humid. A massive river ran down the channel below and disappeared over the ledge behind him. The chain continued through a channel ahead to its anchor within the island, but Jonathan saw a stone ladder built into the wall adjacent to where the chain ran. He grabbed the stone ladder grip and pulled himself from the chain. Gazing up the ladder, Jonathan saw light gleaming at the end of the channel. By the time he reached the top, Jonathan was physically exhausted. He collapsed to the grassy earth around the well for the ladder. On the hill right in front of him stood the large manor of black. It was an opaque color that did not reflect the light of the western sun. It extended no shadow and there were no windows. From the ledge beyond the well, Jonathan could see the curve of a Longinon. Lakes, forests, rivers, mountains, cities, roads, fields. It was then and there, as the sun gave the planet its afternoon day painter's mood beneath the blue shield of atmosphere separating the world's essential elements from the cold, unforgiving universe that Jonathan established a deep rapport with the planet of Alondranon. Good evening, Mr. Tabith, someone spoke from behind him. Jonathan turned to find a man in a burgundy robe with a gold-trimmed black belt around his waist and polished pointed black boots on his feet. He had thinning gray hair on his head, and glasses with lenses that were visibly scratched and scarred. He had a gold dragon earring in one ear, and a red inflammation on his neck and chin. His eyes were a rich green that knew more than they told. He stood at the iron gate surrounding the manor with one hand resting on the globular ornamental banister marking the entrance. I guess I shouldn't bother asking how you know my name, Jonathan said. We know everything about you, even where you come from, he said mysteriously. You can call me Friedrich. I should welcome you home. This is the place you've been looking for since your arrival upon this planet. The place where you are to realize your true potential. Jonathan cocked his brow. 
In his mind, landing on this planet had been the end of his potential. Where is Marissa Narsis? Jonathan asked. Friedrich met his eyes. I don't know to whom you're referring. Jonathan's frustration spilled out. Where is she? He growled. He had not come all this way and climbed up that enormous chain to be deterred. Contain yourself, Jonathan, Friedrich said. Come, I'll give you a tour of the Villa Noskul. We'll get you some more comfortable clothes to change into. And there's a fresh feast for the master's return. He started up the meandering steps toward the manor. Jonathan took a deep breath before following up the stairs. He couldn't help but feel as though a black cloud hovered over the building as he drew closer. The sky was a deep lavender as the sun crept toward the horizon. How long was your master absent? Jonathan asked as he passed through the threshold into the cool of the manor. The walls were made of black stone, and the ceiling was high to the roof. Several hundred years? I've lost count, Friedrich said. They walked down the entry corridor. Three cressets lit the passage ahead, one at the entrance, one in the middle of the walk, illuminating the yellow-tiled floor in the crackling firelight, and one at the foot of the steps, leading to the grand hall beyond the magnificent double doors. Jonathan followed Friedrich up the steps at the end of the path and entered the first grand room of the manor. Staircases led up and around the elaborate greeting hall. The building looked deceivingly small from the outside, but from the inside it was a rich, cavernous temple with ceilings that disappeared from sight. The walls were substantially high with hundreds of stairways leading to different rooms and levels with displays of paintings that were too far away for Jonathan to see. Friedrich and Jonathan met the second level of the room, and that's when Jonathan and Norhawk met for the first time. Good evening, world! It feels good to be back! A man with short black hair spread his arms wide as he walked out onto a balcony at the third floor. He wore a blue robe and a black belt with a silver buckle about his waist. He grabbed the banister of the balcony and threw himself over, flashing a pair of black pants beneath his robe. The man landed in front of Jonathan and Friedrich, hopping onto his toes energetically. Estaf Norhawk! He threw out his hand to Jonathan. At your service! Jonathan took his hand. It felt ice cold, even though his skin pallor reflected a healthy, normal tone. It almost looked as though he had gotten a little sun recently. As quickly as the two shook, Norhawk broke away and threw his arms into the air once more. Welcome to my wonderful abode! I see you've already met Friedrich. I hope that you will make yourself at home and be my guest for the next few days. Norhawk clapped his hands and turned to Jonathan. I'm afraid I won't have time, said Jonathan. I'm on an important mission for the King of Narsus to find his daughter, Marissa Narsus. I presume she is hiding someplace in your home. Hmm. Norhawk tapped his index finger on his lips. Jonathan had the feeling he might be hiding something, but, unlike everyone else Jonathan had met on Alondranon, humans included, he didn't read anything from him. There weren't any colors to indicate his mood. He just displayed a shallow smile beneath his narrow nose. His green eyes were filled with an unnerving hospitality, a facade of goodwill. He was like a robot, and Jonathan couldn't discount the possibility that he just might be. I haven't seen anyone, but I'd like you to stay, Jonathan, Norhawk beamed, as a personal guest. You don't even know who I am, and you want me to stay as your house guest, Jonathan wondered aloud. Where is Marissa Narsis? Norhawk's smile dropped to a thin line. I already told you I don't know who you're talking about. Now, he yelled, startling Jonathan as his voice boomed through the hall. 
you will at least stay the night as it looks like you've been traveling for quite some time. But first, he grinned, how about a tour? I have no interest in a tour of your house, Norhawk. I just want to find Marissa Narsis, and I believe she is in this building somewhere whether you know about it or not. Sir, please don't. Friedrich tried to calm Jonathan, but Norhawk interrupted. Pish! We're not hiding her anywhere. Friedrich would have seen a rapscallion running about, don't you think? Norhawk said jovially. Jonathan didn't buy it, even though he couldn't rely on his sixth sense to inform him of what Norhawk was feeling. He was surprised to find how useful the skill had become to him, how difficult the situation was without it. Enough of the hostility already. Let's get you some food and a change of clothes. You're staying here tonight, and I won't take no for an answer. I have people who will come looking if I go missing, Jonathan lied. Norhawk looked taken aback. He looked around the room and raised his arms again. Look around. Who's going to find us? Now stop being paranoid, he screamed. The walls shook causing dust to fall from the ceiling. Several framed pictures fell from their positions across the room and clattered to the floor. Jonathan squinted at Norhawk. He decided against taking action at this time. All right, Norhawk, give me the grand tour. Centuries this house has stood. A Noskel has been the master of the household since its construction. Norhawk began as they passed through the great corridors of the manor. They walked to a grand circular room with a massive stained glass mural of a rose in the middle of the floor. They walked over it casually. We were here during the collapse of the Alms Corona, the dissolution of the hierarchical order, and we separated during the Perinus Discrum. We were sick of following everybody else's rules, right, Friedrich? The all? Jonathan said before Friedrich could reply, trying to understand what Norhawk was talking about based on his knowledge of the language. He was struggling. All-encompassing? The constant crisis? Is that what you're talking about? Norhawk paused to glance at Friedrich quizzically. He looked to Jonathan. I'm referring to the collapse of the Hyark Beam, the one that circled the planet years ago. He's not going to understand that, Norhawk. Friedrich spoke to him for the first time since Norhawk's introduction. It wouldn't be hard to remember. It was only a few years ago, Norhawk argued. So this princess you're looking for, Friedrich changed the subject. Might we get a description in the event that we do come across her? Jonathan thought about this. He hadn't actually gotten a description of Marissa Narcissus from anyone. Fortunately, he hadn't seen a single woman outside of Narcissus. If she looks anything like her father, the king of Narcissus, she'll have dark brown hair and light bluish green eyes. Norhawk glared at Friedrich, who looked as though he had touched a nerve. Narcissus? said Norhawk. Wasn't that the name of the Chancellor of Egrin? When did he have a daughter? The king's name is Surveys Narsus, Jonathan clarified. Norhawk stopped and narrowed his eyes on Jonathan. Surveys? Who's that? The king's name is Redinal Egrin, and his son, he emphasized the word, is in his medulla day with two sons of his own. I think you might be a bit behind the times, Norhawk, Jonathan said. However, if there is someone named Narsus in your recollection of people from the capital, then it wouldn't be hard to conceive that this Egrin was removed from power not long after your departure. What's your favorite meal, Jonathan? Friedrich asked, changing the subject again. Cocosuila me tuberosum. Jonathan spoke the Alondron words for roasted pork and mashed potatoes. It was the delicacy most champions enjoyed after becoming renowned. Friedrich was trying to keep Norhawk from having these revelations, but Jonathan continued to Norhawk as if there had been no interruption. 
Earlier, you said it's good to be back. Where did you go, Norhawk? Norhawk's eyes widened. I went, he thought. His smile faded as they passed a wide threshold and entered what looked like a former champion's hall. I went too, Norhawk blinked and put a hand to the side of his head. I can't for the life of me remember. Friedrich's eyes darted between Jonathan and Norhawk. This is the trophy room. Before the villa's upheaval, we used to train and compete our own collection of champions. Yes, quite the eye for champions my father had. Norhawk's smile returned at the remembrance. I used to bring him all his meals for his Miranda Hora. I'd always see them training, but he told me I was never allowed to compete. I had to stay inside and work on my studies. I always wanted to fight in the arena, but not like everyone else. I wanted to use my skills to beat everyone, but father wouldn't allow it told me the nobles wouldn't understand. They never give chances to people like me. He used to say that people like me scared them. I always said, that's right, jerks, you should be scared. Norhawk stopped and lifted both hands. A jet of flame fired from a space between his hands and erupted through the air. Jonathan winced at the spontaneous burst of heat the action created. Norhawk was not like any Alondron Jonathan had ever met. He seemed more like a human but that couldn't be possible. He certainly didn't come from the Enigma or any other earthen vessel. Statues of former champions lined the pathway leading down the aisle to a large disc at the end of the hall. Upon the disc stood the life-size stone statue of a man holding up a giant black hammer, as if challenging an invisible foe. He had long, curly hair and a bushy mustache beneath his hollow, determined eyes. Norhawk waved at the statues on the left. Allow me to introduce our only form of company. Gret the Smasher, Ravon the Spiller, Sesha the Ender, she was my favorite as a kid, but my father's favorite, the man who was named for a god, Trelar, the Destroyer of Worlds. He was incredible to see in action. The three stopped around the largest statue in the center of the disc. Hanging on the wall behind him were dozens of novelties that Norhawk's father had collected over Trelar's time in the arena. Most of them were wooden dolls in various positions. Some were weapons he'd used to finish epic battles. Over Trelar's head, hanging upon two hooks at either end of the table, was the biggest sword Jonathan had ever seen. Intrigued, eh? Norhawk grinned stupidly. Might we wrap up the tour soon? Friedrich asked. It's time for you to take your medicine, Norhawk. Sure, we're almost done. Come on, let me show you the library, the kitchen, and where you'll be sleeping tonight. It's all down the guest corridor this way, Norhog motioned for Jonathan to follow. Throughout the tour, Jonathan had been patient while steadily growing more frustrated. The two were hiding something from him, from everyone. Something in this friendliness, it was artificial, a show to divert attention from the underlying motive. Jonathan was certain he'd have figured it out by now if only he could read Norhawk or Friedrich. They entered a more cozy part of the villa, which looked like the familiar style of quarters he had become accustomed to. There was a circular ready room that connected to three other passages. The east entrance connected to the room that was the living quarters, an odd corridor that connected to the main hall with a line of beds extending into the darkness. Each bed had its own nightstand and trunk. A large brazier burned in the middle of the hall before the passage disappeared into the darkness. There are comfortable clothes in the trunk at the foot of your bed, Norhawk said. Jonathan noticed that sweat had broken out over Norhawk's forehead. Get back to your room, Norhawk. I'll finish the tour, Friedrich insisted. Pish, Norhawk said again, dabbing his forehead with the hem of his robe. I'll be fine, 
kitchens that way. Help yourself to whatever Friedrich has stocked. The library's this way. By the time they had crossed the circular room, Friedrich was practically carrying Norhawk as he wrapped an arm around his shoulder for support. Norhawk's face had gone white. He looked like he might pass out at any moment. All right, Friedrich. I might have gotten a little overzealous earlier. Help me back to my room if you'd be so kind. Jonathan, it was wonderful to meet you. Have a nice stay and I'll see you in the morning. Norhawk sighed. Jonathan watched the two hobble into the corridor and disappear down the hall. He would have offered to help, but he knew they wouldn't allow it. Him helping would expose whatever they were doing here that they didn't want him to know. Jonathan had never once said his name, but both of the men knew it. Norhawk had already expressed the ability to do things others could not, which made Jonathan wonder what else he could do. Jonathan found the kitchen across from the guest hall. Dust covered the shelves and cabinets of a small room that was supposed to pass for a kitchen. Cobwebs shrouded the corners of the room, harboring skittering black spiders. There were a few bags of moldy flour in the pantry, but nothing more. It was clear to Jonathan that Friedrich and Norhawk weren't really in the business of entertaining house guests. He walked across the hall toward the library. He had taken to spending time in Alondron's libraries whenever he entered a new city and had time between games. He never knew what to expect and, with Harold Rowe's assistance, had been able to read the Alondron written dialect well enough to begin recognizing authors and writing styles. He was particularly curious about Norhawk's library. He came to a long room that had shelves on either side of the walkway. Jonathan recognized the spines of some of the more popular older books. Writers in the Alondron world were scarce. Most of the books that were released into a form of mass print were by iconic authors from hundreds of years earlier who defined the style of royal services to the country and people, particularly their display of military tactics. There were a lot of books by priests on certain religions. There was a copy of the Book of Omne, and many other books on religions spawning from that one, some that Jonathan didn't have the capacity to understand due to the altercations in the Alondron dialect from so many years prior. He could barely read the language of the modern day, much less something from a millennium earlier. Unfortunately, many of the books had become worn and dilapidated from years of neglect. Jonathan paused for a moment to survey a series of books on herbs and flora in the Alacrity region. He didn't know what he expected when he opened the books, but each had the content the cover displayed. All of the books in the library were authentic, meaning Norhawk was quite the collector, a difficult feat for someone who had been gone for several hundred years. Nothing here felt right. He slid a book onto the shelf and stepped back from the main corridor. Unlike the rest of the manor, Jonathan could see the end of the library nearby. There was a desk and a reading chair beside a small torch mounted upon a gray cobblestone wall. Jonathan collapsed in the chair and observed the silence of the library. The two had gone to great lengths to create the illusion of safety in this manner. Mentally, however, Jonathan felt unnerved to his core. He couldn't imagine actually trying to sleep here. Jonathan felt a twinge of urgency when he thought about Marissa Narciss and how the two men had disappeared. She was somewhere in this building. He could feel it. Those two bastards were up to something, and Jonathan was sick of their false ignorance. He needed to do something, take action, get a rise out of one of them so that he could remove the illusion they were hiding behind. Burning wood popped from the torch nearby. Jonathan casually glanced over to watch the flames when something caught his eye. 
The stones that made up the far wall were generally the same color except for one blacker one resting behind the back of the chair, adjacent to the torch. Jonathan thought he was extremely clever when he approached the stone and pressed as hard as he could. Nothing happened and the stone didn't move. He had to step back and look at the wall for a minute to realize his mistake. There was a switch in plain sight, but it wasn't the stone on the wall. It was a loose stone on the floor. The blacker stone was from where whomever had grasped it to hold enough leverage to press the button. Pushing the stone with his foot, the wall nearby slid away to the side and led to a hidden room. Hello there, Jonathan said. The room appeared to be a small extension of the library. In some ways, it was an alchemy lab as there were glass jars of herbs and chemicals on shelves and in open cabinets. But there were other setups that Jonathan didn't understand. He saw crystals connected to small, hand-cranked generators above alien constructs that rippled with strange, lifelike energy. Alondron mathematics that were very similar to earthen physics covered the walls in an obsessive scroll. The few books lying around had odd symbols and black bindings. Most had pages that had come loose and were disheveled within the rest of the glued ones. Black and red spiders slipped between the shelves and disappeared into cracks of the stone walls and floors. Jonathan approached a desk with a setup of peculiar devices. He saw an open book on the desktop with drawings and words and a laundron on the pages. Flipping a few pages, he realized that it was documentation, an account of a complex project. Jonathan started from the beginning. The name at the top left of the inside cover read, Friedrich. There was a lot of prose and introduction that Jonathan couldn't understand. He had to bypass the math because his own understanding of physics made the Alondron method seem incomprehensible. However, based on the drawings and what he could decipher, Friedrich had done a considerable amount of research and testing for years, and had ironed out most of the kinks in an idea that he called Avitas, which translated to immortality. He began writing the book shortly after meeting the nobleman one Estof Norhawk. He agreed to fund Friedrich's project on the condition that Friedrich share his findings with him. There was a bit of legal jargon pertaining to the agreement, and then Friedrich began his proposal to solve the age-old complex of recycling energy without the necessary cost of expending energy to do so, an issue that Jonathan understood intimately. Based on Friedrich's previous excursions, he had succeeded in several tests using special crystals, found in a place with a name that Jonathan couldn't pronounce, as a sort of battery storage that also amplified energy once it was reactivated. He turned the page and saw something he hadn't expected. Friedrich had constructed a theoretical device that could transfer energy between a set of these energy crystals using an arc medium, a humanoid, between the activating forces. This allowed an external output of over 600,000 times the consumption of power to a third crystal. Jonathan had to question the integrity of these crystals. How could they hold this energy? Was it even possible to harness this stored energy into an expendable resource? If so, how? And in the end, what purpose could it serve? It all seemed far too archaic and superstitious for Jonathan to take the theory behind it seriously. The process required a humanoid, a host with complex brain function. Something about the brain and body connected physiologically with the crystals, tapping a deep vein of psychic and physical energy. Based on Friedrich's previous experiments, the host he had tried this with always died. 
but he remarked that each host had a profound experience of enlightenment and well-being before dying. He flipped through the pages, noting that Friedrich had continued testing his ideas on humanoids. As his methods progressed with the backing of Norhawk's wealth, keeping interested Alondron officials off their backs, Friedrich's hosts stopped dying. They survived in a vegetative state and died of what Jonathan knew to be radiation poisoning. The little that Friedrich was able to get out of them was that most had been able to see their future and the future of the planet. Cities rose and fell endlessly throughout history. The world of Alondronon became populated and then completely desolate. The cycles of life and death within a forest. Friedrich considered these accounts mere hallucinations as a result of the experiment, but found that everyone had the same form of experience. After years of working with Norhawk and detailing his victims in this ongoing project, authorities began to grow alarmed. People were disappearing, sometimes turning up later as some farmer was tilling his field, or when a ranger passed through a river on his horse and unearthed bones that had been weighted down with chain. There became a consistency of disappearances following the presence of Norhawk or Friedrich. The two kidnappers realized they would have to hide from the populace in order to continue. An event occurred in which Norhawk was injured by several guards, but in the process many people saw him murder his assailants with special powers. It seemed that the Alondrons weren't only adverse to the human expression of extraordinary ability, he was also seen kidnapping a young girl. Young girls were their preference, Jonathan noticed. That was the age of their last victim before the great Vexamen. Norhawk had constructed the globular force field and raised the cape where his manor stood. He was able to do this, but at great cost to his energy. The only way it was possible to maintain this process, however, was for them to find a host once a month. During the times when a host was not present, Norhawk spent his life energy maintaining the illusion. Friedrich noted that, in doing this, Norhawk had lost all concept of time. It was almost like everything had happened and was happening to him all at once, keeping him from being able to differentiate past events from the present experience, which eliminated all possibility of a future. But to Friedrich, his experiment was a success. Saving a host was no longer Friedrich's goal. As Norhawk tapped the wells of energy that were stored within the crystals, he was able to revitalize and rejuvenate the both of them. Jonathan turned the page, and it was blank. In the last paragraph of the journal, Friedrich mentioned that he had lost track of time himself, but believed that they had been finding and assimilating victims for possibly 2,000 years, the majority of which were girls between the ages of 6 and 29. According to Friedrich's research, it had something to do with sexual energy that could not be harnessed in a Londronon society. Jonathan closed the book. Marissa Narcissus was in great danger. He turned around with the intention of finding the two, but they had gotten to him first. Norhawk and Friedrich stood side by side in the threshold of the laboratory entrance. Friedrich looked like little more than a corpse next to Norhawk. Jonathan knew they were here to kill him. The time for diplomacy was over. He made to charge the two, but Norhawk disabled him with a mere glance. Jonathan's body fell lax and numb. His mouth fell open lazily as he was lifted off the ground telekinetically. He could not move any of the muscles in his body. There was nothing he could do. I guess we can drop the charade, Norhawk said. Normally we'd have wiped your memory and thrown you back into Krieg's tower, but I'm having trouble using some of my cants on you. I'm a little surprised this one worked. You were asking about this girl you've been looking for in my house. 
I'm afraid you've come too late. She's just about finished. And that's where I think you're going to prove more useful than her. I need power. I need energy. I need someone who's not afraid of anything. Goodbye, Jonathan, said Norhawk with an evil grin. Next time you wake up, you'll be in heaven. 6. It's hard to say where reality ends and where dreams take form. When do the pictures and images and visions begin? Are they abstract amoebas rising and taking shape from the smoke of the universe? That primordial gel that everyone seems to be taking far too seriously? Sentient awareness, some call it. Lucid dreaming. Even in the chaos of dreams, one should still be capable of experiencing something. Rarely did Jonathan dream in general, but this was far different. If there was ever a skill in which one could effectively turn the tide of dreams to their favor, Jonathan was far from mastering it. He spent what felt like lifetimes following and chasing goals, finding himself in post-apocalyptic cities, running as fast as he could for nameless successes. He passed through the skeletal remains of buildings, descending into vast sewer systems, trudging through deep sludge and climbing ladders to no end. He ran through the corridors of mighty vessels and ships that reminded him of the Enigma. He had to shut down the core, eject the reactors, tell Sam or Elizabeth to adjust something on the monitors or repair an obscure part on the ship that shouldn't have been broken. He climbed through the narrow spaces of the vessel, getting lost because things were backwards. Had he not constructed the ship himself, theorized every nook and cranny for peak efficiency and accessibility, how could he be getting lost? At times, Jonathan felt drunk, seeing the familiarity shrouding the places he found himself, but his recollection of reality was failing in his ability to navigate. Not only did he get lost, but things began to change around him, close in, trap him like a rat in a maze. The difficult part was the complete disconnect between the world and himself. He did not feel of anywhere he found himself. And then everything changed. He was still trapped and suspended. He could not move. Colors shifted before his eyes as exhaustion flooded him from head to toe. Jonathan felt the sapping, not just from his physical being but to his core, to his soul something far beyond his incarnation to the well of energy that had fueled his existence throughout time and space. This feeling continued on without ending, but Jonathan's consciousness drifted. He found himself standing on a snowy hillside that overlooked a darkened farm hamlet beneath the gray sky of turning cloud cover. He looked down to see withered fingers emerging from the sleeves of his brown robe. A gray beard extended down his chest to his sternum. When he moved forward, he shuffled. Old age had come to him at long last, his greatest fear realized. His journey and story had come to an end. Had he done enough? Did he change the universe as he had always dreamed? Had he accomplished and conquered every obstacle of the human condition, save for the final journey of death? If so, why was no one here? Why was he alone and not among friends? he made his way down the path leading down the hillside. The rooftops of the village towered over him. Crows called as they fluttered from the window of a deserted saloon on the corner of the intersection and disappeared somewhere within the town. The sky displayed the dim twilight of a fading sun. The exhaustion caught up to him. He needed to sit down. He found a well in the center of the village and sat on the rim. 
broken buckets were half buried in the earth around his faded gray leather boots. His heart was beating rapidly. Jonathan swallowed and looked up to a closed wooden barn door before him as snow began to drift from the heavens. A scuffing sound came from behind him. Jonathan glanced over his shoulder and saw nothing. A door creaked from nearby. The draining coursed through him again and Jonathan saw only colors. That horrible suspension feeling flowed through him. This time pain filled him from head to toe. His hands closed upon something sharp, but then he returned to the vision and realized he was gripping the edge of the well so tightly that he could see the imprint of the rim across both palms. A stone struck him in the neck and landed in the dirt beside his boot. It didn't hurt, but someone had thrown it at him. Jonathan stood up and perused the village. Another rock hit him above the eyebrow. The pain, lifting sensations, and colors returned, coursing through his sleeping body. Somewhere he flailed, rejecting what was happening to him. He opened his eyes and saw from on high a mass of burning cities. Clouds of black covered the sky above rolling landscapes between towns. The sensation of drowning washed through him. He felt like he was trying to swim toward a surface he couldn't seem to find. Lightning flashes of pink and orange exploded through the heavens as Jonathan swam through the sky helplessly. The recurring weakening weighed down his muscles in attempted efforts to escape this madness. Images of his youth flooded through his mind, centering on the events that had shaped his thinking and understanding of the universe. There was the grassy hillside on earth where he had realized his destiny. The first electrical socket he had put together that worked. His first rocket to break the sound barrier. The first time he had made love to Bren, who had admired him for his passion. How he had missed her after the two parted prior to his move to Pluto Station. Jonathan flashed back to his elderly residual image within the small town. He stared at his shaking old hands. When he closed his eyes, he saw the repulsive vision of mashing teeth, ripping the bloody meat off bones within the dim torchlight. There was a sense of urgency to this vision. He felt hungry stomachs and searching eyes. The screams of women filled his head to the point where he didn't think he'd be able to stand it anymore. He tried to get up. A horrible ringing flooded through his mind. Vertigo warped his bearings, sending him back to his seat. His capacity to hold his own weight abandoned him and he fell against the frame of the well. He tried to breathe but he couldn't pull air. A shaky hand clutched his heart tightly. Jonathan realized that it was his own ancient knuckles, white within the tightness of his grip. In his chest, his heart thrummed what might have been the last moments of its simple existence. A skinny girl with bright blue-green eyes and brown hair hopped down from the rafters of the barn in front of him. She wore the garb of a peasant, but Jonathan knew it was Marissa Narcissus. He tried to call out to her for help, for whatever good she might be able to do. There was no reversing the effects of old age. Even if the reality wasn't real, Jonathan was in no mental condition to question it. A spike of fear ran through his mind as pain fired through his left arm. He met Marissa's eyes, and then everything dissolved into light. Time slowed down for him. Of all the times he had come close to dying, he didn't think he'd ever been this close. A thrumming filled his mind, the tug of his heart, like the pounding of a drum. Somewhere, Jonathan's hands clenched as tightly as they could onto his prison walls. His muscles tightened as the rhythmic drumming continued filling his world. 
He felt as if he were falling into an endless void where his entire being would be erased to the phantasm from whence he had come. He heard the guttural roar of a wild beast ring through his head before he realized it was coming from himself. The resistance fell away. Jonathan opened his eyes and saw a vast open space. From the middle of nowhere within this empty lot of space, a ship emerged as if it had been birthed into existence. The vision was eerie as there was nothing here, not even matter itself. A series of other ships rocketed into the blankness after the first ship until an army of them began to flood from an area of space that was all too familiar. Following after the growing line of ships, Jonathan saw the first comets of the Oort cloud looming in the distance. They were headed to his solar system, to Earth. Jonathan followed the line of ships and passed through the portal to a Londrinon solar system. At first, Jonathan thought he was looking at clouds of asteroids moving through space. He realized that they were more ships. A sea of vessels extended all the way to the distant planet ahead. He moved alongside the mass of ships that were moving at millions of miles per hour. His vision moved by the meandering river of ships, past space stations and floating debris from a recent space battle. Jonathan swam through space as a laundronon grew from the size of a golf ball to the size of a planet in seconds. He homed in on a place that seemed at random, passing through the atmosphere without resistance. Oceans and mountains fired past him as he soared toward a tower city on the horizon. As he flew, he saw the burning cities he had seen earlier. Rocketing to the topmost floor of the tower, Jonathan saw a man standing on the ledge with his arms crossed. It was himself. He had gray hair and the determined eyes that had carried him through his life. The elderly Jonathan lifted his arms in triumph against a raging downpour. As though tugged by a hook, the spirit of Jonathan was pulled out of Alondronon's atmosphere, beyond the ships, back through space, through the wormhole, and through Earth's solar system. He arrived in time to see the first of the ships pass through a mounting defense from Earth's military, but it didn't matter. A single, silent explosion erupted upon the planet's surface. The light of the sun peeked through the cracks upon Earth's construction. A moment later, the entire planet burst apart. Jonathan saw through his own eyes once more, staring determinedly into the stormy black clouds that covered the whole of Alondronon upon this day. All of him wanted this. Jonathan in the vision and Jonathan by spirit. He realized that he had never wanted anything so badly before. To see Earth's end. To see the ignorance cease. To cut the cancer before it could bring its volatility and destruction to other planets. It was as though his destiny had brought him full circle. In this moment, he embraced his destiny as the ender of worlds and filled the sky of Alondronon with fire. All of the pain returned as Jonathan, heart pumped with adrenaline of what he had seen, woke in the small village. He was no longer an old man, but his current age. When he stood up and looked around, he saw Marissa Narsa standing before the barn doors. She fixed him with a cold stare. A telepathy passed between them, eliminating the need to speak. She needed to show him something. Jonathan blinked, seeing himself in the future with his arms raised, the blood of earth on his hands as the rain poured from the heavens. He flashed back to the village. Marissa Narsus began to open the barn doors. Jonathan flashed to a vision of himself in his trousers, and suspended within some sort of energy field. 
His hands grasped two crystals jutting from a larger crystal behind him. Friedrich and Norhawk were standing before him, a look of horror upon their faces. Marissa pulled back the doors of the barn. Prickling spiders ran across Jonathan's flesh at the bodies, young women's bodies, faces aghast and rotting away to nothing. Norhawk and Friedrich sat at the table nearby. They clutched the cooked arms of their victims, stripping the tender flesh off the bone. Blood covered their fingers and cheeks and collected in the corners of their mouths as they chewed. He saw the black sky and fields rolling before him as the sky rained blood upon his shoulders. The greedy image of Norhawk and Friedrich sucking on the bones of their victims returned. Jonathan heard the screaming again. He could hear the panicked cries of Norhawk and Friedrich outside of his crumbling world. As if witnessing a Londrinon's galaxy from outside, Jonathan felt the pull of a million beings as they connected to him on a plane that Jonathan could not yet comprehend. This connection was absolute, and nothing could break it. He had called to them, and now they would come. He saw a fast-paced collage of everything that had happened and everything he had seen before he woke to the real world. Jonathan's muscles strained as he gripped the crystals that were making him a conduit for Norhawk's energy contraption. He was still screaming, angry, and furious as his body released its final burst of effort to break free of this nightmare. Electricity pulsed through his arms and legs as the output overloaded the conduits. The manica on Jonathan's wrist exploded. The crystals shattered from their mountings and Jonathan launched himself from the platform toward Friedrich. Friedrich's eyes widened. He shook his head as Jonathan arched the sharp end of the crystal over his head. He slammed one into Friedrich's shoulder blade with all of his weight, sending the two tumbling to the floor. Black blood spattered over the wall and tile as Friedrich gasped for breath. Jonathan smashed the other crystal into Friedrich's bald skull and got to his feet, heart hammering in his chest. He didn't see Norhawk anywhere in the room, but he did see Marissa Narcissus lying unconscious in the corner amidst the contraptions and crystals that he had seen in Friedrich's journals. You come into my house and ruin everything I have built for centuries, Norhawk's voice boomed. The wall shook with each word. Jonathan turned to the doorway to see Norhawk hovering in the middle of the corridor outside the laboratory. I'll be damned if I ever let you leave here alive! Jonathan turned and ran as fast as he could down the corridor as explosions followed behind him. Get back here! Norhawk's voice echoed down the hall at his back as he slung fireballs at Jonathan like he was a skittering cockroach. Jonathan met the intersection of corridors with the stained glass emblem on the floor. Norhawk entered the room and began hurling gigantic fireballs in Jonathan's general vicinity. They ruptured and exploded around him, scattering pieces of wall everywhere. Jonathan ducked and dove out of the way. He scrambled to the nearest hallway and charged down the passage. He swerved out of the way of fiery projectiles as they struck the corridor about him. Up ahead, he saw the line of stone champions on either side of the room. Aiming for the giant statue of Trollar, Jonathan dove through the space between his legs in time for a fireball to reduce the statue to smithereens. Fury coursed through Jonathan as he snatched the handle of the hammer from the floor and glared down the corridor as Norhawk tore through the hall with fire burning through the air around him. He swung the hammer at Norhawk. The insane sorcerer avoided two of his strikes before Jonathan's hammer connected with a magical force field surrounding Norhawk. Wincing, Norhawk grabbed the head of the hammer and swung Jonathan down the corridor from whence they came. 
Jonathan slammed and skidded down the hall to a stop with the hammer lying next to him. Getting to his feet, Jonathan realized he was in the middle of the house again with the stained glass rose on the floor. All but one of the doors to the room slammed closed around him, trapping him in. The last door closed as Norhawk hovered above him. Somehow he had sustained a cut on his head that was dribbling blood down his cheek. He looked extremely angry. Enough running, you damned insect! Norhawk took a deep breath, hovering above the door. If you want to live, you'll let me and the girl leave, Jonathan said. Norhawk dropped to the floor. He wore a stupid look on his face as he walked toward Jonathan. You think you're in the position to make demands? He asked exasperatedly. You can't kill me, Jonathan. You have about a thousand more lives to live before you'll be capable of killing me. All right, said Jonathan, dropping to one knee to grab the handle of the hammer. Maybe I can't kill you, Norhawk, but I can still burn your house down. Jonathan jumped at him with the hammer raised. Instead of going after Norhawk, Jonathan smashed the hammer and himself through the stained glass floor. He swam down a darkened pit, leading through the underbelly of the floating island as millions of shards of glass swirled around him. Jonathan swam through the air down the pit, clutching the hammer to his chest. Up ahead, he saw the massive anchoring ring that held the chain holding the island in place. He was mounted to the stone interior of the island wall. Guiding himself through the air with his arms and legs, Jonathan followed the chain down the channel. Norhawk telekinetically followed Jonathan down the passage. He grabbed hold of Jonathan's ankle, but Jonathan tucked into a ball and then slammed both feet into Norhawk's chest. Jonathan kicked off of him, propelling himself down the shadowy passage with the hulking chain links passing in a blur alongside his form. Light rushed from below. Jonathan dropped from under the floating island and continued falling alongside the massive chain as the wind billowed around him. The world spread about beneath the globular force field in all directions, the morning sun breaking over the eastern horizon. Aiming for the platform where the chain was grounded, Jonathan spread his arms wide. He braced himself for a landing, not a crash, but a landing. Jonathan's feet hammered onto the platform as his abdomen and upper body thrummed to a sudden halt. His ankles hurt for a second, but he was fine. Recovering himself, Jonathan lifted his heels to see indentions in the metal plate that was bolted to the edge of the Antecedus Tower. Raising the hammer over his shoulder, Jonathan brought the weapon down upon the metal ring. The figure of Norhawk swam from the sky, a huge fireball charging between his palms. Jonathan brought the hammer down upon the large ring, clanging the brute force of the hammerhead against it over and over until it became red hot. STOP! Norhawk screamed as he launched his ball of flame at Jonathan. Out of sheer anger, Jonathan braced himself like a batter as the missile blast soared toward him. Heaving the hammer at both the fireball and Norhawk, Jonathan exploded backward as a brilliant light filled the sky. He tumbled into the guardrail of the tower, breaking through but barely catching himself upon the ledge. Jonathan hauled himself back up as Norhawk was launched backward. Panting, Jonathan swallowed hard as he considered the plate mounted to the tower's rim. Norhawk swirled back into control of himself telekinetically. Jonathan reached down and gripped the edge of the plate. He could sense Norhawk moving as swiftly as he could toward him. Just as Jonathan had ripped the hood off the hawk in the cathedral courtyard, and how he had torn the prison bars apart upon the ship, Jonathan hiked all his strength as his fingers curled around the steel corner of the plate. He felt the metal bracings give way. 
He felt his spine creak, the muscles in his lower back tighten and flex. This was the only way to kill Norhawk. Jonathan thought of all the girls Norhawk and Friedrich had killed. He thought of their families, thought of the lives they would never get to live. They'd had no one to fight for them and had died like whispers in the night. There was no justice but that which Jonathan had to serve in this very moment. He glared at the tower ledge and beyond as he moved past his strength and conviction. He let the power move through him, allowing himself to keep pulling even though all physical reality told him the strength required would be more than he could muster. There was a loud clang. With a final throw of effort, Jonathan tore through the steel bolts holding the plate to the tower. The pieces were upheaved into the air with a sudden relief that flooded through all of Jonathan's innards, and then Norhawk slammed into him. The two flew through the force field back into Antecedent's tower. Norhawk, holding Jonathan by the throat in his gnarled grasp, slammed Jonathan through the tower floor next to the ladder well. Jonathan's back and body crashed through the floor under the weight of Norhawk's power. Outside of the magic of his enchantment, the flesh began to burn from his skin. A horrible skeletal monstrosity grappled with Jonathan as the two thrashed at one another between levels of the tower. You ruined everything! Norhawk plunged both hands with icy, knife-like fingers into Jonathan's chest, smashing the heels of his palms with psychic power. As though all the wind were burst out of him, the strength left Jonathan as the two plunged through the floor into the forever darkness beneath the tower. There was the impact of hitting water before Jonathan swirled through pitch blackness. He occasionally caught a breath, but he was rocked violently through an underground river until he could no longer remain conscious. As per my usual summer arrangement, I was just too busy throughout the weeks to grind out any kind of quality consistency over the last few months. Had to cut an entire two chapters off this episode just to get an episode out before September. But the good part is we'll get to cover the whole rise and fall of Mecha Aish in one solid episode with Jonathan before we finally reach the end of his journey. It's been a little difficult to contain some of the later events that happen on Alondranon because of how long it's taking for us to sift through Jonathan's prologue. Our next episode is a Richter story that I've been working on for a few months, but that's part of the middle canon of the Alondranon series, the prime area before things blow up and get really interesting. Anyway, I hope you guys had a wonderful summer. Mine was okay. Not enough time to do anything of substance, but it went just fine. Can't promise another episode before next month, but I'm going to do my best. This old computer I'm using now is pretty much done, so whatever gets recorded next will likely be on my newer system. It's been me procrastinating importing all my settings from this interface over to the new one that's been part of the delay in production. But as always, stay safe, stay happy, and I'll see you next time. The Apocalypse Theater Podcast was written, voiced, and produced by Benjamin Allen. Please throw us a good review or tell a friend about our podcast if you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to give us feedback, please contact us through our website at ekpublishingmedia.com. Visit ekpublishingmedia.com for more information about this podcast and other stories as well. Thanks for listening. Okay, began Richter. Me, Sal, and Ella, ambush from the side. And we're dead, said Zeladia. Mulligan and Waldo, create a distraction. Dead, Waldo shook his head. We dive bomb a gnomish airship into the dragon's lair and use the chaos to our advantage. Definitely dead, Ella said. And out a perfectly good gnomish airship added Waldo. 
We have Nathori scream at the dragon until it can't stand anymore. Well, I'm definitely dead. Dothori rolled her eyes. I've got it! Richter's eyes widened as he held up his finger. You already said we should tie ourselves to a harness and trick the dragon into flying through it, said Saladia. And we already said that's the stupidest idea you've come up with. <sighs> I don't hear any good ideas from you guys. That's because this dragon is bothering no one and it's completely unnecessary to go after it, Ella said. For now, and no one knows who it pissed off before coming to Sharton, but I don't intend to let it graduate into a nuisance. Dragon's been in hibernation for the last year and a half, Richter, said Mulligan. The dragon isn't the problem, it's your boredom. So I like a challenge now and then, is that a problem? Richter asked. Only when you're asking your friends to help you kill an ancient, hyper-intelligent beast that's technically too sentient for you to actually have a chance at killing it, said Waldo. There was a long pause as everyone stared at Richter over the table. I'll start making the harness. Everyone groaned as Waldo slapped his forehead. The Apocalypse Theater Podcast is an EK Publishing Media Production 2022.